in the uh, nonprofit podcast studio and uh i gotta say i thought this whole covid thing was a hoax <laughs> um until my friend got it <laughs> then i got it then all my other friends got it <laughs> hashtag sarcasm <clears throat> anyway um one uh we want to we're gonna you know uh, as if this horse needs further beating, um, we shall uh, sort of turn another episode around this uh, this whole virus thing and the human experience with it, um, because a good friend of ours, Steve, uh, is in the studio with us today, fully recovered-ish, <laughs> and um, uh, had quite a, an experience with uh, the Wuhan Koof. And <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, welcome, Steve, Michael. Thanks for having me. Lambert. <laughs> huh. um, I can't I, I remember we were texting, and you kind of felt a little fluey for a, a day or a couple of days. I, I had the flu for about two weeks. Okay. And I had it pretty bad for three or four days, just classic flu symptoms congestion yeah. sore throat miserable and i had i had a really interesting experience with fever because i went from overheating to having a cold fever from one day to the next and i went through that for about a week okay and then i really didn't get better the week after that <laughs> and then the next thing i knew uh, my brother that I lived with said, you know what? You've been sick long enough. We need to go get you tested. So I went to a drive up, um, COVID testing place yeah. down the road from my house. I went there about noon and they tested me and I was negative. Okay. And then I went home for a couple hours and my brother said, you just don't look very good. Let's, <laughs> oh, thanks. Let's, um, you need to try. And I didn't even know this was a thing at the time. He said, you need to, um, just try the pulse oximeter on your finger and let's see what, what your, um, your oxygen percentage is. Yeah. So I did that and it was pretty low. I don't remember what the number was, but he, he knew what was going on. He said, you know what? I'm taking you to a clinic. Okay. This is the same day. So I went to the clinic and everybody was all masked up and everything. And I didn't want to be in this room with all these other people in the waiting room. Oh, yeah. I was kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> and anyway, and so I said, you know what? I'm going to just go sit outside and walk around a little bit and get some fresh air. And by the time my, my appointment came up, maybe half an hour or an hour, I went in to see the doctor and he checked my, my, uh, he checked me with a pulsimeter. Yeah. And he said, well, your oxygen's fine. Well, that's because I'd been outside walking around and, and in the fresh air. Yeah. 
And then he said, but you've got all the symptoms of COVID, so let's test you. And I said, well, I just got tested four hours ago, and they said I'm negative. And they tested me at the clinic and said I was positive. Nice. Yeah, so which test do you go by? <laughs> best, best out of three? Yeah, right. <laughs> so then, then what happened is I went home, and I was and I was... I was pretty out of it. And the other thing I had noticed during this time period, that I think is an important point to bring up in the, in our conversation is that I knew for about two weeks, I could tell that my thinking was kind of dulled. I was kind of having a hard time processing information. I was kind of aware of it, but there's this thing you get with, um, with COVID that's called happy hypoxia. Hypoxia is when your oxygen level is too low yeah. or you have too much carbon monoxide in your in your blood system. Hopefully not carbon monoxide. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And happy hypoxia, <laughs> it's a it's a characteristic of COVID. One of the things that's that's um kind of diabolical about yeah. the COVID virus is that it attacks your body on in multiple systems in multiple different ways. And one of the things it does that's so dangerous about it is that it bypasses and tricks your normal functions that help you know that you're in trouble. Yeah. So you get happy hypoxia, you're low on oxygen, but you feel but you fine. Don't, but you don't know it, yeah. Yeah. So, it's almost as if it was um, designed. <laughs> yeah, almost. Sounds like. Imagine that. Weird. Yeah. So I was, I was, did we just get canceled finally? I, <laughs> I was home just kind of having the flu in bed. Yeah. And I remember my brother came in about four o'clock in the afternoon and I was, I was, maybe I had, maybe I was dressed, but I didn't have my shoes on or something. And he said, you just don't look good. I'm taking you to the emergency room. So this is after you this went after to the going to the clinic. clinic and tested positive. Yeah. And then they released you into the Yeah, they just sent me home and said yeah. take two aspirin and good luck and don't call us in the morning <laughs> yeah. basically. Wash yeah. your hands. So he said, <laughs> I'm sitting on my bed and I I was maybe I was in bed just kind of lounging around and I I sat up and I went to like put my shoes on or put a sh- a jacket on or something. And I looked at my brother and I said, you know, I'm just too tired to walk up the stairs and go get in the car. Let's go tomorrow. <laughs> and he said, no, I'm definitely taking you to the emergency room <laughs> yeah, yeah, right now. That kind of reinforces my... <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and I was just exhausted. And it's not even, I mean, it's like 15 stairs maybe. It's not even a big thing to get upstairs, but yeah. I was just... I was just exhausted and I was out and I didn't know at the time. I didn't find out till later, but my oxygen percentage was at 72 when I went, got admitted to the ER and 72 that's, is about where they say, okay, we, we got to stick a tube down your throat and force yeah. oxygen in there so you don't die and get brain damage. Yeah. So I went, we went to the hospital and I haven't had to go to the hospital for a long time, so I'm kind of out of the the loop. But the current protocol is you don't just go into the ER anymore like you used to. There's a there's a security guard at the door to the hospital, and they pre-screen you. Mm-hmm. 
And so we talked to the guard, and he said, well, it's going to be about an hour before you can get in. Like, and I was like, wait, I'm at the ER. What do you kind mean of an, an hour? Emergency? Yeah. <laughs> so fortunately, it was only about 10 minutes, Okay. 10 or good. 15 minutes. He had us pull over into a little section of the parking lot. And as, as soon as I got admitted, you know, I got in and they checked my my vitals. And the next yeah. thing I knew, I was on a gurney and there were, there were 10 uh, amazing people th- directed at me and taken care of me and they gave me and they i had an ekg and i had an mri and they put me on oxygen immediately and you know they saved my life literally i I, I was just about to suffocate and die basically and i i didn't realize i knew i didn't feel well but i had no idea i was that low on oxygen wow jesus so that's (laughs) That was my entry into the hospital. <laughs> kind <And> of <laughs> rather dramatic. Yeah, kind of dramatic. <laughs> um, and then I also noticed it was like something out of a movie because I had all these people taking care of me, all these nurses and doctors and physicians assistants. And there was one guy in particular, I think he was like, I think he was a physician's assistant like one step down from a doctor and he was kind of like my primary person taking care of me and he had a full he looked like he was something out of a a biohazard movie he had a full-on scuba set up you know (laughs) and and i also noticed that every time these and i noticed this throughout my stay in there this is this covid thing is the doctors are taking it very seriously because i remember i remember one time when this guy I'm talking about worked on me. I mean, he had a full face mask on with a respirator and a hose coming out of the back. Oh, no shit. And I remember he reached over to work on me, like to take my blood or something. And I could see that he was wearing gloves and then his shirt sleeve kind of pulled up, his gown or whatever. And I could see he had another set of gloves on underneath an outer set of gloves. And every time... I was in the hospital for about two weeks. Every time someone came in or out of my my hospital room, they completely changed out their protective yeah. gear. Wow. And I had, you know, for two weeks, I had somebody checking up on me every two hours. Every two hours, they came in to fill, yeah. at, at a minimum, they came in to fill up my IV and and take blood and check my blood pressure and, you know, make sure I was doing okay. And every single time, they had to change out all their protect. They changed out their gloves and their and their scrubs, basically. Wow! And that really made it settle in with me. Wow, this is this is kind of a big deal, you know. I was one step removed from intensive care, and I was like, yeah, this is this is a big deal. And so a lot of them had like three layers of facial protection. Yeah. This, you know, some, almost all, all of them were wearing at some kind of like an N95 or a KN95, whatever the yeah. number, a mask. But a, a lot of these guys had a full scuba thing on top of that. Yeah. Wow. And I'd never seen that before, except in like the Dustin Hoffman movie. Where, <laughs> where Which the, is what this whole thing is based on, right? Yeah. I, yeah. Hope, I mean, this is the script we're running. Yeah. 
And you avoid, you stayed out of the ICU, right? Yes, I was, I was very, very fortunate. Um, I didn't know, uh, I mean, I do, I do want to say I had phenomenal care from everybody in the hospital. I'm so grateful. I wish I could, you know, I wish I could find them all and give them a hug. And, and if I had the money, I'd send all my nurses a dozen roses because they were fantastic. And I, and the toll that it's taken on all of them is not discussed very much, but I have mm -hmm. friends that are nurses or their their wives are nurses. And I, I remember after I got out, my one one of my friends told me, he said, yeah, my, my wife is working with us and she comes home just sobbing every day from seeing all the, having to help all these people yeah. that are dying from this. And to have to do that every day and keep coming back. And, and my nurses, I would, I, after a while, I, I kind of got my wits back about me. For the first while I was in there, I didn't know this until after I got out, but they, I was on, I was on some pretty heavy painkillers. Okay. They didn't, I don't think they told me that or if they did, but so I felt fine. I thought, okay, I'm doing the hospital and I know that they're checking on me every two hours, but I had no idea really <laughs> how bad my situation was. But I'm pretty was. euphoric. Yeah. <laughs> And, but I, these nurses were just, they're incredible people and, and took, and they were always positive and, and it was kind of funny because after for, for, they would come in and maybe every day they would ask me stuff like, okay, what's your full name and where were you born? Because they were trying to see how with it I was. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so after a couple of days of this. Um, I knew I, I thought I was doing better because I started feeling like joking around with the the nurses. And so the nurse would come in and say, you know, so what's your name? And I would say, Bond, James Bond. And they would laugh, you know, and, and joke around with me and stuff like that. But um, I was fortunate in that I don't know if it was, I, I mean, I, I was fortunate, definitely. But one of the things I think is interesting about this is that if you have to get intubated for any reason, there's a very high probability that you can die. Mm -hmm. Because having, I mean, they intubate you so that they can get air into your lungs because you can't pull enough in right. on your own. Yeah. But when they put that tube down your throat, they're doing it to save your life, but it's, it's kind of a weird signal to your brain. Yep. Your brain, in a way, it <laughs> understands that it's getting oxygen, but in another way, it's like, wait, I'm not getting oxygen the normal way. I think it's time to die. So let's start shutting down others, mm -hmm. other processes. The way your brain is very jealous. Mm -hmm. And so the way it works <laughs> is it will shut down everything on your body in order to keep your brain alive. So okay, yeah. if, if you're climbing and you're freezing, it'll shut off circulation to your toes yeah. in order to keep enough warm yeah. blood so the brain can live, right? Yeah. And so when you get intubated, it's very easy for the brain to start going into the shutdown process in spite of the fact that you have enough oxygen. And this, ha this happened to a friend of mine. He he went in after I went in and kind of had the opposite experience to mine and he ended up dying. Mm -hmm. 
So it's it's a thing. I, I was fortunate that I didn't get intubated. And I would tell anybody that's listening to this that, yes, you need to listen to your doctors, but do anything and everything you can to avoid getting intubated. And I, I do think there's a big, there's a big thing to your will and your attitude. And if I could go back and talk to myself or if, if if one of my friends like you guys were in the hospital and I was going to visit you, I would, I would tell you, you know, you have to keep your wits about you and you have to be aware that you're, you're kind of in a fight for your life and that and that you have to remind yourself you want to live. Yeah. Because if you don't, there's just, there's a good chance you can die. You yeah, know, I don't and, think... and and you can lose your sense of I mean, I know both of you guys, I know Mark better than I know Michael, but I know you want to live and I know that you're a fighter to live, but if you're high on on painkillers yeah. yeah and you're in a lot of pain it's easy to kind of lose sight of that oh yeah you get distracted uh, that's yeah. kind of the th- i don't think it gets talked about enough about the importance of people's mental state and how that drives everything either consciously or subconsciously <clears throat> there probably should be some i mean there should be something to that if they you know, if they understand the power of somebody's will to live. And the, the reason it's not, it's like, it's not easy to measure, right? But you definitely see people who have that fight and the other people that just kind of give up into the circumstances. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And you could, you could give up without meaning to. Sure, or yeah, maybe, accidentally. Yeah. Or maybe not spiritually and mentally fight as hard as you would if you had your wits about you. Our recent like kind of experience in a hospital, what I what I thought was interesting that kind of matched maybe your experience the first time you kind of told the story about your COVID experience was A, how absolutely generous and like concerned the, the actual help is. Like, like it's overwhelming how helpful people are in the regard of what they're taking care of mechanically for you, you know, bringing food, doing all of this kind of stuff, checking in on you, checking your vitals, pulling blood, trying to figure out the problem. The, the alarming thing to me, the alarming thing to me was like how little information is relayed in those exchanges. Yes. That was, that's, that was one of my big revelatory experiences or, or revelations mm-hmm. from going through this is that especially when I when I got um, discharged from the hospital yeah but even before I realized that and again I'm, I'm super great I'll always be grateful to my doctors and nurses mm-hmm. okay but at the end of the day nobody cared about me getting out of that hospital more than I did sure and at the end of the day, yes, your doctors and your nurses care about you, but at the end of the day, they go home and, and they see people survive and die every day and they're doing the best that they can for you. But when it comes right down to it, we all have to be responsible for our own care, even yeah. if that means making sure you get the right doctor or yeah. communicating right with your doctor or whatever when it comes right down to it nobody's nobody cares as much as you do yeah. <laughs> nobody should care mom. as much as you do but yeah I, I mean that that's like what i found which is interesting is like when i look at i'm trying to 
the the root structure of kind of what the whole problem is involving you could just say the medical industry or, or healthcare in general but the pandemic really reveals that right you have you have a pathogen that is caustic and people get very very sick but a wide they have a wide range of reactions and that's what's so hard to manage yeah um but when you're looking at it realistically the 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 one kind of vector that i think is really important is you're like you you kind of look at pe- how people take care of themselves right before they become infected with with this pathogen and that really influences kind of the outcomes for it's, the, it's for the a most huge part. it's a huge variable yeah. yeah and what's been interesting about covid is that it's it's affected everybody differently mm-hmm. and it it's very difficult to predict how because I've seen people that are very fitness oriented mm-hmm. and they eat well and their weight is good mm-hmm. and it's wrecked them. Yeah. And then I've seen people that are overweight and don't take care of themselves and it's wrecked them also. Yeah. And then there's there's people in either category that it hardly phases them at all. It's like almost asymptomatic. Right? Yes. And this is this is why it's hard. I mean, I think you can obviously the data shows that like you know, the predisposition for having other comorbidities in check is is one of the most important things you can do, right? Especially if those are influenced by lifestyle. So yeah, I think I think the biggest one is your is your weight. Yeah, unless you have some aside from age, right? Unless you have some horrible, you know, if you're if you're severely diabetic or something like yeah. that, or you have some preexisting, you know, you're terminally ill with some kind of um, horrible disease, yeah. then you, or you're really old and, and infirm. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest risk factor. But the next one after that is you're, if you're overweight, because yeah. what happens is the, the COVID virus camps out in your fat cells. And mm-hmm. if you have a lot of fat, uh, reserves there, it's more places for it to. Yeah. The, the interesting thing with this is because also like some people have argued this back and forth, even, uh, a Taleb, like statistician, mathematician kind of guy who has like very clear thinking when it comes to, you know, critical reasoning of some sort. And, you know, he, he tends to go where the data goes. And so he's very pro certain things, pro vaccine based off of the daddy's pro uh, certain things. But he, I think what is kind of hard to argue is this stance from an authority position to not tell people to concern themselves with their lifestyle factors that they can influence, right? If, if it looks like age is the biggest determining factor of poor outcomes when it comes to COVID, like the, the, the chart, the older you get, just the worse it looks, but that's true of almost any disease. And there's nothing you can really do about that specifically. I can't get younger, but I can influence how my body uh, reacts to certain things by uh, being in a healthier state, like I have better metabolism, that is a biological difference. And it, it tends to be that younger people have different metabolism. So when you start looking at some of these factors, weight is obviously, a, 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 I don't know, it's a correlative. It's not even an exact problem, right? I could be heavy and still very healthy. But if you look at, you know, obesity, or even just how your body stores fat as a function of what it's doing. It's really, it it is the tissue of inflammation, right? Like when there's too much in the body, that's kind of how it reacts to something. 
Um, the weird part about all of this, and we've talked about it kind of extensively of trying to get, trying to get to the bottom of what people can actually manage. And this is kind of where I've come to with looking at getting COVID, managing our own kind of deal, managing, like hearing about people who have very hard circumstances under COVID. It's not a, it's not a benign disease. This is not, this is, it should not be ignored by any, by any means. it's It's a big deal. The interesting thing that it comes down to is I, I really find a fundamental problem in you mentioned it in passing kind of deal is like the self-responsibility thing is the most important foundation for any kind of healthcare, right? And you mentioned it so many times of like you're only you are going to care about yourself enough to keep you alive like that. That was true before the pandemic. It's just we didn't have any kind of lens Stressor. in which to magnify that yeah. self-care. And by self-care, I just mean like I, to, being aware of your own health, being aware. And I, this this kind of forces you to be really aware. I feel terrible. I don't think I could make it to the top of the stairs or whatever these sensations are, are some of the first awareness people have about their health as in, oh, it deteriorated past what I was comfortable with. But most people, and I mean most, are in a really bad position, stress-wise, food-wise, nutrient-wise. I mean, as a foundation, the self-responsibility signal in the U.S. is very low. And that, in medical care, I think is detrimental, especially when you look like we, our experience at a hospital recently was astounding. The doctors are so knowledgeable, so caring, but you also have to know what questions to ask. And this, I think it's missed on most people. And you don't really realize it until you start hearing about, you know, politically appointed doctors and they're, they're, they're managing things kind of differently. But the word doctor, um, it, it doesn't mean somebody who cares for you, right? It means teacher. Like that's the original term. That's why you can get a doctorate in other subjects because you then become a teacher of those things. Mm-hmm. So where I think a fundamental flaw is in, in I don't want to take away from your healthcare or, or criticize the doctors. I feel the same. I feel the same gratitude towards the doctors who helped care for London and us while we were there. Um, but they weren't teaching us anything. They're no longer doing yeah, their job. That's true. And that is, I think, a major problem with instructing people how to care for themselves as opposed to just writing prescriptions or just dealing drugs or whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're managing acute problems in the actual ICU or whatever the hospital you're in, that, but they're not teaching you how to avoid this or teaching you how to get out of the situation. That's, that's, Which that's compound, compounded right now because the medical system or the health system is overwhelmed mm-hmm. with COVID and they don't really, they're doing the best that they can, but they don't really understand it. They don't really know exactly how to deal with it. And, and so they don't have the bandwidth available to go to really the next level is what you just described. Sure. It's helping people have a better level of general health before they ever get sick with anything. But that's something it, you're, that's the responsibility of your GP, you know, the doctor, mm-hmm. you know, the general, the practitioner that you <laughs> see on a long-term basis, you know, once every six months or whatever, depending on your age yeah, um, the, and the what's doc- covered by The doctors insurance. in the hospital right now are really doing, in a way, they're doing triage the because there's so many. Drill in the NFL, I yeah, mean, yeah. Is essentially. They can't, the, the, it's not really their thing to do preventative 
maintenance. They're sure. trying to. They're well, trying to just. Well, the industry isn't built off of that. But yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, and I think I think if you want to address how to handle future pandemics or future problems, I think that's that has to start being part of the conversation, right? Especially when people have these like you know pretty close calls um, with basically just a, a lens that magnified what the issue was, right? Which, I mean, maybe the best way to ask is like, what have you like, you know, you can finish your story too, because I think it's actually pretty fascinating about um, how you got out of the hospital and the circumstances in which you got out and what you changed about what you were doing personally for yourself. I have one question. Um, you, so your brother dropped you off and then he was probably... To, you know, you just disappeared down the hallway of mm. in with the astronauts. Almost. And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then um, was he around to advocate for you for a little bit? But I, I, I believe um, he, you're... He was. I struggled with that quite a bit because um, I, was, I was kind of out of it. Cause yeah. Because I, I, I was on painkillers and I was sick. Yeah. And then all these layers of, of protection, mm. you know, I had a hard time even understanding my doctors and stuff. And so I leaned on my brother via, te via text quite a bit. And he was kind of, you know, interfacing with the doctors and stuff. And, yeah. my, and my parents were also. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely that was another that would be another one of my big takeaways from this experience is that as much as you want to be self-contained and self-sufficient and a rugged individualist and not a burden. To no, anyone. no man can be an island, you yeah. know, and and the only reason I got through this is that my brother was watching out for me. And fortunately, he he imposed his will on me to make me go to the doctor when I didn't really want to. And, you know, I probably would have died without that. And also, I had a huge support network after I got out that helped me figure out how, how, to, um, how to plan my rehabilitation and how, how to get better. You know, the doctors kind of sent me home. Um, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not mad at them or anything. I don't, I don't want it to come across this way. But basically, they got me to a point where I was stable enough to get out and then they didn't say this to me, but they basically said, this guy's doing good enough, get him home because we've got other people that are much worse off than we need the hospital beds for him. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, the hospital, you know, I got out on a Thursday and a friend of mine had to go in on a Saturday after, and he had to wait nine hours to, before he could even get into the ER. Yeah. And that's how full the hospital is. Now, they, which is a... Um, Another thing that should be sort of looked at because it's not, it's just the, the, you know, as far as I can tell and understand is that, you know, for-profit medical system is that, that, um, you're running at, uh, as close to capacity as, you know, possible in the best circumstances. Yes. Um, economically, they have to, you, they, you, can't, yeah. you can't afford to have a whole bunch of doctors and nurses and support personnel on standby at any given moment. It's yeah. You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars an hour. Yep. And these hospitals, 
they their businesses even though they're nonprofit they they have to they have to write checks that clear at the end of the month so yeah, they have to have a bottom line and overhead and all that stuff becomes an important feature and 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 it's not like there's an accordion ability accordion like ability yeah to there's only expand. so many doctors and nurses and there's only so many rooms and you know the hospital only has so many um intensive care beds yes that sure. have all of the equipment around yeah. them and they only have so many personnel that are are trained to work at that level yeah, yeah. and one thing that happened with me is that i was in the first hospital i went to very nice hospital I had great care there and after i'd been there about a week i thought i was doing better and my nurse came in one of my nurses and said hey uh we're moving you to another hospital yeah and i i remember thinking at the time wait what what's wrong with this hospital everything i'm doing fine everything you know why am i moving to another hospital well, I didn't know at the time, but I was getting worse and they basically didn't have the right facilities and the right personnel there to treat me at the next higher level. Don't you think that's weird that you didn't understand that about your state? I I don't because I didn't understand until <clears throat> I got out, but I was I was high on painkillers basically. Right. And so um I I don't I don't. I didn't tell that part of the story as a critique or anything. No. It's just, you know, I'm just laying there in bed in in my scrubs, um, high on painkillers, just kind of getting by and doing fine. I I had okay appetite. I was, mm. had good meals and everything, and and I don't. I don't think they did anything wrong. I don't. I'm not. You know, and it's possible they explained to me in more detail than I'm. I'm relaying right now, and but you were I didn't it. realize yeah. it. Yeah, because it's some drug-induced attention. Yeah. <laughs> but I was, I was with it enough that that um, it's weird. I think it kind of relates to the happy hypoxia thing because I was in the hospital and I actually was not doing well, and I thought I was fine. Yeah, for right. being in the hospital. So like, maybe it's not the happy hypoxia; it's like the happy heroin. Yeah, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, it's, it's that's a better way to put it but at some point so um you were admitted with o2 saturation of 74 yeah something like that and normally they intubate at 70 yeah i think 70 or 72 um, i mean i was right there and i recall like we were i was just going through the texts that we were having you know, had I known how high you were, I would have messed with you a little bit more. Um, but uh, that, you know, it, it was, you know, five liters a minute, then 15, and at some point up to 40 liters a yeah, minute I was on, flow. I was on, I think I was on, I don't know exactly what I went on when I first went in, but if okay. I was at 72, they would have put me on a lot of oxygen at that time. Yeah. And one of the reasons that they moved me to the second hospital, which is St. Mark's, is that they had a, a more advanced kind of um, oxygen delivery system. Delivery system. Yeah. That it's like a higher flow. And I remember. It's like a high flow oxygen thing. And at that, but at, at that point, I was on 40 liters a minute. That's a lot. Which is a lot. It's a lot. And I remember you said something about like it was warmed O2 also, like that almost. Yeah. It's like. It's it's some kind of a 
a high delivery oxygen system where they can that basically helps keep you from getting intubated it, it, yeah. it stretches out your mm. your window if you will okay if they have that equipment available it can they can use that and a lot of times they can avoid intubating you yeah and so which they, i recall was that was like goal number one avoid intubation goal yeah. number two avoid pneumonia Yes. <laughs> and I had pneumonia. That's why I was in the hospital. Okay. Mm. So th that's the whole reason I was there. But what, ha what happens with COVID is that this virus attacks your body in multiple ways and it causes this, there's a name for it. I can't recall. It causes this very severe inflammatory storm. Yeah, cytokine that storm. Can, that messes yeah. with all of your organs. It can wreck your heart. It can yep. wreck your kidneys. Yeah. And my friend I was talking about, he went in and um, he had this storm. I had this storm too. Everybody yeah. that gets it gets it to some extent or the other. He had it bad enough that his kidneys shut down mm -hmm. wow. and they had to put him on dialysis. And then they put him on, they intubated him. And then, and after, I don't know the exact time frame, but after a day or two being intubated, he started rejecting the the intubation and so they had to put him in a coma to keep him alive because otherwise he was yeah. trying to cough out the yeah the, the tube. tube and then yeah. he, and then unfortunately he he ended up dying so how long you were were you in the hospital two weeks before they moved you or a week i think i was in there a, about a week and then they moved you to the other hospital it was yes. a little bit more upgraded and then how long were you in total time um, I was in the actual hospital about three weeks total. And then they sent me home. They basically were, they basically what happened is I was at 40 liters of air a minute and the, and the nurse came in one day, one afternoon and said, and she was super nice. She said, yeah, so I was just noticing that, uh, that we don't really have any, we don't have a next of kin on file for you or who you want to help with your end of life decisions. And I was so high at the time and kind of naive that I thought, I remember thinking to myself, oh, it's just routine. I, I wonder why they haven't done that already. Yeah. End of life. That sounds fun. <laughs> so un, unbeknownst to me, I was getting worse. Okay. Okay. And at this point, I'm on 40 liters of air a minute. And they've, and, and they literally, I had my mom down as my next, as my contact person for all those issues. So they gave me some forms to fill out and they said, okay, who, do, who's your next, who's your next of kin? Who do you want us to call if you're unconscious and you can't make these decisions? And they ask you, you know, do you want to be resuscitated if such and such happens? And so I filled all that out and unbeknownst to me until after I got out, um, they had called my mom or my mom's talking to the nurse at the nurse station and and said look we've done everything that we can do for him we've given him every medicine that we know to give and if if steve's immune system doesn't kick in in the next day or two he's probably going to die so you need to um you need to let us know at what point you want us to pull the plug on him if it gets to that point you need to figure that out and it's better for you to figure it out now than have to, to figure out right when it happens. Yeah. And obviously I lived and fortunately I got better. And what happened is that my, my doctor came in and said, 
they never told me that I was in that series of condition. And yeah. I actually, at that point, I thought I was doing better because I was starting to get bored with being in the hospital. The first, <laughs> the first week or so, I was, in, I was kind of in enough pain. I didn't really feel like I was in pain, but I was high enough that I didn't realize I was in pain. And I didn't even want to watch TV or anything. I barely texted anybody. I would literally just... I remember you watched Man of Steel... And then yeah. Wonder Woman. Yes, and then I got to catch up on all the on the uh, the the Mark and the, the, the... and Michael um, trained movies. I, I got to watch I got to watch Three Hundred again, and yes. and and uh, and so that was kind of good. But I, the first week or so, I didn't feel like I didn't even want to watch TV. Yeah, and, but then after. This was at the new hospital. I, I thought I was doing better because I felt like I felt like watching TV. Yeah. I watched Man of Steel. I watched Wonder Woman and and caught up on some old movies I hadn't seen in a long time. And then I was kind of like, yeah, I got to get out of this place. I'm I'm kind of tired of this. I'm tired of buzzing the nurse every time <laughs> I want to go to the bathroom. And and I've they had these they put these wraps on your legs that are connected to a like an air compressor. And, oh, yeah. and it's to help keep you from getting blood clots, yeah. which is a big risk with COVID. Yeah. So I had these on and I'm, and every time, and I had to go to the bathroom like every two hours because I, because they're running they're, Yeah. I'm on IV mm. and they're topping off my IV every hour. Well, that has to go someplace, right? Yep. So every time I wanted, I needed to go to the bathroom, I have to page the nurse and they were always super good. They would help me, you know, and, yeah. but after, I thought I was doing better because I was like, okay, I'm tired of this. I can just figure out how to take these things off and unplug them. And I would just unplug my own my own thing or I would take them off and go to the bathroom and come back because I didn't want to bother the nurse. Setting off alarms all over the... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all over the I'm unplugging my EKG. Yeah. And, and um, I thought I was doing better and I wasn't. This is this is like call his call his mom. He's non-compliant. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> so the doctor yeah. came in and said, uh, finally he came in and said, "It looks like you're doing better. We're trying to get your oxygen down to, you know, your oxygen is down to 25. You're down to 15. And if we can get you down to five liters a minute while maintaining saturation, adequate yeah. saturation, yeah. 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 then we'll send you home." So finally, I got to that point, and then, and then they sent me home with an ox with a cannula and a and a tube and and a uh, and a and a big canister of oxygen, so I could make it from the hospital to the house. And then they and then they give you a um, an oxygen generator. It's kind of like a oh, okay. It's kind of like a suitcase that that you're plugged into, and then. This was a big shocker for me that ties into what Michael was talking about a minute ago is that they literally they I had a couple of minor prescriptions there was like a painkiller and a cough suppressant and and something for congestion mm. pretty much over the counter stuff and said, you were on mucinex for like months yeah right yeah because I had really bad congestion yeah and and the cough suppressant was a big one. Okay. Like if I hadn't had the cough suppressant, I would have been super miserable. They put me that oh, yeah. on that. I was on a pres prescription cough suppressant the, the minute I went into the hospital, yeah. even though oh. I didn't have, I didn't think I had a terribly bad cough, but I went back and looked at the records and they had me on that the whole time I was in there. 
But when I when they sent me home, I had these three kind of over the counter um, symptoms relievers, if okay. you will. Yeah, and they they all worked. And then they gave me this this very generic sheet that everybody could write at this point. Every American at this, probably everybody in the world. It was a very generic thing. Here's how you don't get COVID. You need to social distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, and and that was it. There was nothing. Was and, and then dose? it said, and go see your GP in two weeks. <laughs> and literally, that was it. There was nothing about like uh, you need. You're going to be on oxygen for this long, or here's how you get off of oxygen. And that was that was another big reinforcer to me. I, I was at, I was at home. They really sent me home early because they needed the space in the hospital. Sure. And I'm glad they sent me home early. Like the sooner you can get back home, if sure. it's safe, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to recover better. You're around less sick people. You're yep. you're more comfortable. You're in your regular environment. Hospital environments are not conducive to like healing actually yes like and especially right now because other, of yeah. this because this is yeah. a an airborne virus that yeah. we're dealing with yeah. right so i was a, i was home for a while and i was pretty i was pretty miserable it was it was kind of a it was a it ended up being a blessing that, that i my bedroom is in the basement and i had to walk up the stairs every time i needed to go to the bathroom or mm. get something to eat and it wasn't it wasn't that it was particularly difficult mm -hmm. but it was good exercise for me if that makes sense yeah. and i can a lot of times just when i'm when i'm healthy i like to take two or three stairs at a time or yeah. sometimes i kind of sprint up the stairs yeah. occasionally just in my regular day but i i did not have any any strength or energy or power to do that it was a it oh was yeah a, it was I, a minor thing to go up and down the stairs compared to your experience my experience with COVID was minor, but I couldn't have made it to the top of my street. I was so weak and tired and fatigued and like brain yeah. foggy and I, achy. Yeah. I, that was one thing that, that came up in my studies on recovering is, you know, um, you know get out and go for a walk. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, they, and there's kind of a suggested thing for it. Like maybe, you, and you need to have someone hold your hand and go with you when you're in that state. <laughs> And you, maybe you go use, for use a half a block system. and come back. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. I, I couldn't do that. Right? Yeah. And so I, um, after a couple weeks of that, I, I was like, okay, this, this is a drag. I'm, and I could tell, I had lost a lot of weight. I lost 30 pounds through this experience. Mm -hmm. And, and fortunately, my friend Mark, I, I complained to him about that. And he said, that's oh, okay. Don't worry. If you lost a little muscle, we can put that back on. That yeah. was, that was sure, very yeah. encouraging. Yeah. When he's and then we talked a little bit about like rowing, super easy, no straps, barefoot. Yeah, that was, that was interesting because I had a rower at the house. And I, and it was it was cold. It, the, the weather was kind of bad at this, at this yeah. time. And so going out for a walk wasn't a simple thing and i thought okay i'm gonna get i i got i knew like i need to get moving this laying in bed all the time is i'm atrophying it's killing me at yeah. this point i gotta get and if i could go backwards i would have started doing this sooner so i thought okay i've got the rover at the house and rowing 
isn't is an ideal exercise to me because it's very scalable like you can go as easy or as hard as you want depending yep. on what your situation is so i thought okay i'm just going to get on the rower mm. and and get some blood flowing and just move a little bit and it was really interesting because everybody that i mentioned that to in my in my circle of of friends and family and stuff except me were pat were like oh my god no you can't do that you're gonna die what are you talking about you just got out of the hospital the people that were trainers and athletes they totally got it and they're like yeah that's a good idea but everybody else was like no oh my gosh you're gonna die are you insane you're gonna get on a rower and I said, yeah, I'm going to go to a CrossFit class. I'm going <laughs> to sit in the garage yeah, and right. I'm just going to row. And as long as it feels good for like five minutes, maybe, but nobody yeah. could people, it goes back to kind of what you've been getting at in our conversations is people, people aren't really aware of their, their health and their fitness and, and their, their state of being and so mm. to a lot of people that aren't athletes if you say well i'm going to go for a little a light jog to recover from covid they're like oh my gosh are you crazy you're mm. going to go run a marathon in the olympics yeah, yeah that's right. what comes into their mind well because any physical activity is thought of as like a, they have negative connotations with it because yeah, most, they don't understand the, like a recovery workout. It doesn't even or, the or term doesn't even even mean more basic that your body is is mechanical and movement helps flush and move yes. certain things around the lymph system. All of this stuff is and that that's good for the brain. That becomes good for the organs. If it's good for the organs, that changes the blood pH. When you get up and move, you also change your breathing pattern, which yes. can either base or acidify your blood. And now you're changing your state, which puts you probably you're going to be in a state that's more likely conducive to healing. Yes. This this is where it's alarming to me that most doctors actually don't understand this feature about the human system. And the, the, like to come back to kind of an overall window is like the hospital thing, right? Um yeah, they're at capacity because they're running like a business and they're mad because they have too many customers. Like, well, you set the system up to be like that. But if you didn't want customers, how would you solve that problem? Well, I would solve it. Like if we don't want customers, if I don't want people in my gym, I teach them how to do what we do so you don't have to fucking come here. That <clears throat> that doesn't mean we don't have customers. It just means we don't have time to deal with everybody and we can deal with a, like we still run a business. We still make money. Can, There's still you can profit. deal with a different level of 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 client. Right. Like maybe you have clients that that need a rehabilitation, or maybe they have sure. a very specific goal. It's temporary, and that lets you focus more yeah. on that versus. Yeah, it, and it should be all all, um, and especially when you're in the teaching space or something like that. All relationships in that interaction should be temporary. If they're dependent, that's not a good system. Like that's exactly what our healthcare system dependency is. is a problem, and I think it arrives from this lack of understanding that self responsibility starts with awareness, right? Awareness of myself and what I need, and how to take care of the basics, so somebody else isn't put out by having to take care of me for me. That doesn't mean no one should ever take care of you. Obviously, like. I'm indebted to people who have cared for me 
where I was unaware, they step in and make me more aware. Your brother was more aware of you and thankfully probably saved your life because of his awareness. Definitely. But what you can do from that is acknowledge the truth of it is like, ah, I need to be more aware of my state. I was caught off guard and I got into a bad situation and basically healthcare and hospitals and emergency rooms, they're buying you time. They're, they're, they're giving you a window in which you can become more aware if they can save your life. But the awareness should carry over. And what I think we've done a really piss poor job of, I mean, just with the basic stuff in this healthcare thing, you said that doctors don't really kind of know what's going on with COVID. It's kind of a mess. I don't think that's true at all. I think we know a lot about like compared to a year ago, we know so much about this disease and how to actually uh, actually treat it. Like yeah, the- when I when I said that, I meant it in the context of like if you look at something like polio mm-hmm. sure. or or a broken arm. Sure, yeah, yeah. If you break your arm, the doctors, they pretty much know how to, it's a pretty established science and they pretty much know how to fix it. But mm-hmm. with COVID, it is getting better, but there's still there's still a lot of variables and, mm-hmm. a, and still a lot of unknowns. And restrictions. And yeah, and the experience <laughs> in, in our little circle yeah. is interesting. Like yeah. b- between, you know, if there's five of us in the circle I'm talking about, mm-hmm. you had... You had three of the five were not vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You had two of the five that were, mm-hmm. and you had one person was in the hospital for a month. You had one person, it hardly affected them at all. And yet we're all we're all pretty close in age. We're all kind of comparable in fitness. And yet everybody had a completely different experience. Did I state that wrong? I mean, pretty close in age. I'm at least 20 years older than everyone here. No, you're not that much older than I am. How old are you now? 55. Oh. For some reason, I always think of, oh, my friend Steve, he's like early 40s. Yeah, everybody everybody (laughs) thinks that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 55 going on 40, but... But this is kind of interesting. We've been friends since I was like... For a long time, Mark. Yes, we have. <laughs> yes. Th- this is an I, interesting point about trying... To, okay, so we're trying to data collect, right? Yeah. And, and this is not for us to do, but our brains naturally move to uh, organizing a, a way to see the world and predict outcomes. So I go, oh, Mark was okay with it. You weren't. And I start to attribute or assign, you know... Like what are the things that, yeah, that, what, that what are the contribute attributes? to those different... Uh, yeah. For for how wildly different our circumstances are, we would really have to get in the weed. And this is one of the most disappointing things I think about this entire um, pandemic is the lack of consistent data, given our nature to know how to collect data. So I like, think that's I think that's part of why the the treatment isn't better. I, I agree with you. And this is like, if we were fundamentally interested in isolating and tr- trying to really understand this disease and how to manage it as a part of our normal life, not lockdowns, none of this like, you know, a, acute intervention to hopefully stop the spread until we understand it better, we would really want accurate data points. And that's something, if if we had, it would change things. And where where it gets alarming, and I'm, I'm not against any any 
I'm not against pharmaceuticals. I'm not against them developing anything for that. But I think the the truth of our circumstance comes out when when they start to acknowledge maybe an argument between for or against um, uh, vaccines. And so it goes both ways because the argument on uh, one side of it, and this is highly politicized and I try not to make it that way, but the argument is either um, do we have data on COVID deaths? Not really, right? Like what we mark as a COVID death is not very accurate. And this came out with the last CDC release of yeah, uh, and do 30, we and Do we have the same da- data on like the flu or the common cold? Well, something not- that I find quite interesting about this, mm-hmm. that, and this is not a um, pink, you know, a, a rabbit hole necessarily, but after two, let's, let's just say two years mm-hmm. of sort of exposure and research and human ex, you know, experience with this virus. Um, this is the only, as far as I can tell, <laughs> like the only disease for which there's only one treatment. Yeah. Oh, I mean, or no, or, no, 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 no you, uh, one, one recommended. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, <laughs> right. That, 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 that any, sort of alternative types of things or things that showed, oh, this was 70% effective and yeah. and we can reduce, you know, X amount of, you know, by X amount of time, uh, someone's, you know, really horrible relationship with COVID. Um, if we administer this, yeah, we don't get them. Um, it's not the best, uh, but it works. And this one over here, it's 80%. And this one, if administered at the right time, it could be even, you know. I mean, the data on fluvoxamine is insanely good and nobody talks about it. In fact, most pharmacies actually won't prescribe it because it's off label and they're afraid to prescribe anything that's off label right now. That's how it was with ivermectin. That's how it was with, you know, some of the less there's a there's a lot of data on these things and it doesn't look great like ivermectin yeah. data doesn't look awesome the vaccines but when there's, don't look great and this is kind of what i'm <laughs> getting at because when you get back to the uh when you get back to the idea of like okay what's the data and we we're okay let's try to understand the mortality rate and what's associated with that you can't even get clear cause of death right so yeah one of the problems that yeah, the cdc just lumping, related we're lumping Almost any cause of death we're attributing to COVID, to COVID the last two years. And so now they're, they're even coincidental COVID is 35 to 45% of cases was the last thing that the CDC, they can't distinguish whether you just happened to test positive and you were in the hospital or you had COVID and you needed hospital care. Now well, that's that, not condemn anybody. Part of that, the problem is my understanding is the tests aren't really that great. Uh, but... I, I, I don't want to take us off topic onto that, but like they're not depending they're, they're, on who you talk to, the tests aren't super reliable. Absolutely, and that is one of the many confounding problems in this. But then only one side was allowed to really raise the flag on that. Every, it got shut down as an argument. You're like, no, you got you're trying the the attempt to clarify the data was seen as an attempt to minimize the threat. And those are not the same thing. And yes, some people use that argument to do the thing, but clear and transparent information is what data collection is kind of about, about understanding something. And it's very lacking. And now on the opposite side of it, you have maybe, you know, a potential injury risk with some 
sort of the population with vaccine, which is what the Vayers report is about. And now the CDC is now claiming the opposite thing. Well, you never know. Like, there's no way to attribute if you died directly from the vaccine, because and this was just said by a Fauci character or whoever and the lady from the CDC, which was if you get the vaccine and then die in a car accident, it's marked in the Vayers report as a death are surrounding the vaccine and you're like yeah this is the problem we talked about collecting data but isn't theirs isn't it like self-reporting yeah yeah for sure in, in a yeah. sense yeah well it should be fairly easy to filter out you know it should be and this is the point on not trying to get to who is wrong and right who's wrong who didn't raise their hand a year ago and go guys we need better data we should have a system in place this is how you collect it here's how you distinguish this from that that way in a year when we're actually trying to look at these numbers we can distinguish between five friends that got different circumstances, what was the underlying thing? My guess, like looking at the differences, is chemical exposure. That's a wild guess. Hmm. But the first thing I thought when Mark told me how sick you were was, oh, you have a lot of chemical buildup in your system and don't realize it. Because of how you work with solvents and how you work with certain things in gunsmithing. that it's, And lead exposure. Yeah, and it could be, other... I could be 100% wrong. But that's it's very possible, but nobody's really talking about that as a as a uh, as a factor. Exactly. And this is because we don't understand health as a foundational concept. We just define health by not dying. And that's a problem. But we should be able to. Me- I bet well, if I and, and I bet if I measured your blood, I bet if we did some blood testing, we would see, um, you know, interleukin sixes and sevens would be through the roof, which is just inflammatory markers for certain things going on in your body we might see just a guess but if it's a chemical buildup we would see your liver and kidney enzymes would be elevated we, we would see certain factors even measuring lead or something like that and we go oh okay you need to do something specific to detox your body and then your body wouldn't react um, especially like a disease such as covid which is an inflammatory disease it wouldn't like kind of fester all those cytokine storms up so high is my guess total guess but these are the, yeah, i think i think that's a good point and it, it's even more than the specific what you said is the methodology of the way you're approaching the problem and the way you're thinking about other factors mm-hmm. besides just the virus yes the virus right. is the main thing we're worried about but or if, other factors yeah. that are um th- that are all visual in their care like oh that person like we can see this comorbidity um it uh, manifested as the extra 200 pounds hanging off this person's body. Yeah. If, we can see yeah. that, you know, if, someone, if a guy, if a guy is 80, 85 or 88 years old we and he has some kind of terminal co- illness yeah. and then he gets COVID on top of that, did he really die of COVID or was he kind of at the end of his life anyway? Yeah. Or, and, or he died because he has, or it was cancer the, it, or something. It was the straw. Yeah, yeah. That like he was getting along okay as long as the system didn't, uh, you know, it, uh, encounter any more stress, right? And then, yeah. um, and and thought that yeah, I'm 85, and you know, this is pretty good for 85. You know, I feel all right for 85. I'm alive and get, getting around. But then the the one thing, you know, gets exposed to COVID, um, and then just like, well, yeah, we've um, we were at 95 uh, percent uh, stress. Uh, absorption capacity and you just gave us uh, over, you know, over 5%. Here's the funny thing is that our medical industry actually reflects perfectly our individual health um, 
perspective. Like the, the state of people's individual health is managed the same way as our healthcare system, right? People wait till the they wait until something's wrong to do something about it. But there's no foundation or education around telling people how to live to a certain degree, right? If you live like this and you eat like this and you act and you de-stress like this or you work in this factor, you can have on average these outcomes, which is less cancer, less diabetes, less this. And these are things that are fairly well known, right? Like the average person can eat under this amount of sugar and under this amount of it. And I'm not even talking about getting into the weeds about actual nutrition, because that would be a nightmare for people to understand just some basic guidelines. Cause right now it's like eat, eat plant-based and don't eat cows because it kills the uh, turtles. Yeah. Right? Or, the, oh or, yeah. This is straws straws. Oh, or, right. Or right. eat the, or the traditional American food pyramid. Yeah. Yeah. The, I think the three of us, at least, would agree isn't. It's not ideal. <laughs> oh, far from right? it. And and it was a sure. political decision. Sure. Well, know, there were made. political and economical. Yeah. I mean, there was a reason for it at the time. And we're still at that same place. And this is the interesting thing: is that decisions that are being made about policy, about keeping people alive, isn't isn't geared towards keeping people alive and healthy. It's actually just keeping them alive. So now you have this confounding keep, keep, problem. Keeping them alive and keeping them on prescriptions and keeping them sure. uh, having to go to the doctor all the time. And I like I'm I would go down that road, but it be, it's seen as like a conspiratorial one and I think I I can believe that that is the um what, what's the best word for it? There's like it's a systemic subconscious nature of a an organism right the organism being how the pharmaceutical company relates to the food industry which relates to the lobbyist which relates to the government this sub unconscious but actually entity is going to work in a way that you know feeds itself the best and that that is a problem to address but just in the in the way that we can how do we how do we address this issue while keeping the system in place because we can't annihilate the system we should we should and, just break it down and and as you said it's like um we're not the interrelationship between all of those organizations if yeah. you will or uh entities um i i don't think it's you know conspiratorial no, you know i, I yeah. don't think it's intentional um, the, the, but it, it just okay if if, if these it's like are in relationship racism. with <laughs> if these are in relationship with each other the outcome is going to be that the organisms you know it's going to feed itself as best it can yes and I, but it, but there's not some you know wizard behind the curtain um, that it, it, that is uh, sort of you know directing things like ah we need to keep the population unhealthy so that we can make more money I don't think that's an actual thing myself yeah, I don't. I, I don't know that there's necess necessarily Dr. Evil yeah. issuing a, a command for that. Yeah. But it is, it is a real phenomenon that, that needs to be addressed somehow. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's kind of the nature. It's probably just sort of happened in a, maybe in a vacuum, if you will. It's just sort of how things work out when people are motivated by power and money. And... But, I but it's I, not necessarily that Dr. Evil sat down and said, okay, here's the diabolical plan. And, and you guys do this and, and you guys do that. It's yeah. just more of a natural evolution that happens in a, in a free market, if you will. I think the, um, the, the analogy of, um, 
you know, how we address our individual health is very similar to how, you know, for-profit uh, medical system um, uh, operates in the sense that, yeah, we want to operate at, you know, at close to maximum capacity as possible um, so that we can actually stay in business. And health-wise, it's like, yeah, I want to, uh, it, it seems unintentional, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, load myself up with um, stressors mm -hmm. to 90% of my ability to deal with it call and and then when and then when something that is normal and then when something breaks i'll get it fixed yeah exactly <laughs> i will get it fixed i will go to the car repairman i will go to you know the the drug dealer i will go to like um so there's not this educational process up front but i think it um i think michael was right you know the um medical system in place absolutely reflects the way we treat our own health I mean, use the car analogy is great what if we all just waited until our brakes were gone to get them replaced and that you're like so yeah lots of lots of people they manage their health care that way exactly. but they also manage their cars that way yes because but the difference yeah. between you know, ideally you have somebody buys a new car and they go in to get it serviced on a regular basis mm -hmm. and the car lasts longer mm -hmm. and is nice longer. But we don't, what I'm hearing, what both of you guys just said is we don't do that as as uh, citizens of the world. I or would whatever. back up even further and like use the brake analogy because I think, I think it works really well. Yes, there are people that wait till their brakes go out and they put themselves and everybody else at risk. They cost the system exponentially more because they're dangerous and they're unaware. Then there's people who wait till maybe the squeaking pads, right? Like the alarm, the squeak pads come off and th those are the alarm bells right then they go oh my brakes are squeaking they know something's wrong so they take it in that's probably fine um i mean it's almost always better this you know if you start getting sick it's you're almost always better off to get to address it sooner rather than later here's what i was taught about my brake pads when driving was like you need to drive your car differently so that you're aware of what your brake pads feel like if they start to wave a little bit it means your braking pattern is you're ruining the system you're hurting it you're intentionally ruining uh, the rotors and all of the system in it and if it feels squishy then you have air in your system or if it feels too hard then something like this you can tune it so that i'm I'm very sensitive to what my brakes feel like. And I know when somebody has been driving my car, like I can feel when my brakes feel different. There's lots of people that are not that tuned into anything. They're not that tuned into their health. They're not that tuned into the way they think every day. And if, even if you apply it to mechanical options, sure. there's people that will run their car into the ground and have no idea that they exactly. have a flat tire on the front. And the reason why is I think another subconscious entity problem. When people become aware of what they feel like and how things affect them, you get people who are not gonna work these factory jobs that are not okay working in cubicles that go, you know what, I need to be in the sun. I need it like, your, your living organism will tell you what you need if you, don't, if you don't numb it and dumb it down with chemicals and entertainment. You, you start to re re recognize what you need in order to take 
care of the system. And that's a sensitivity that is taught. It's shared with people, right? Become more aware, feel what this feels like. Do you feel better? Do you feel worse? So you feel worse. Okay. I was wrong for you individually. Let's try something else to get you more tuned to sensing your environment a little bit better. And that is a foundation. Well, like, how do you implement that on mass scale? You really can't. It's a, I, I, I can I just, do, I can share it with people I care about. I, I think you could, but it's difficult because it's a cultural thing, mm-hmm. right? If you have a culture that encourages that and that teaches people that, or if it made I, money. I think it's definitely doable, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's readily doable on in any good sized society, at least right now, the but way the, things the are. Incentives need to be correct. Sure. You know, or uh, and or you can't be illegal to actually be more sensitive, <laughs> and that that's really what we're talking with about. Fines and jail time attached, right? Like, yeah. you know, I if but you I mean culture culture is what drives everything. If you mm-hmm. ask me, and if you if you have, I mean, you can see it if you if you if you get together with a bunch of athletes mm-hmm. in any discipline, you know, high school or college level athletes or higher. Okay, they have a certain culture mm-hmm. and that encourages them to work out, to recover, to eat better. To And if you get in a different group of people that are maybe a bunch of professional people that are doctors or lawyers or accountants or whatever, they don't have the same culture of, of physical awareness and they're, they're not thinking about it in the same way. Here, here's and an- so I just think that culture can drive it if our schools put more emphasis on it in elementary school. Yeah. You could you could do that over the long term. You could, but I don't think that's what school is used for. And I think doctors are a really good example of this. As people that are put into a position that are supposed to manage healthcare, they do it by annihilating their own health. Right? Like so medical school becomes an example of people who survive that are people who are willing to risk their own health residency, sleep deprivation, drinking habits, eating habits, all get more poor during those circumstances. And yet these are are the exact people who are trusting to know how to modify people's health or people that would risk and damage their own health. Those aren't good selection processes for healthcare providers. And that's because they're not healthcare providers. They're pharmaceutical. They're they're providers. I was going to say um, that's not a good system. You know, that's not a good group of people to rely on as healthcare educators. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because um, because of exactly exactly that, and so then you do end up with a um, stimulus response kind of relationship with the medical system. It's it's a confounding problem. I mean, and it's. I think the interesting thing about it is I think you're at a time period where people can start to address it, especially the more honest people are about their experiences about, oh, I went through this and this is what I changed about my life. So like that that's what, man, it really like kind of when you were telling me your story the other day, I was like, fuck, we really have to talk about this because it's it's like, what are the things that you came out of that that you changed directly? Like, what are the things that you noticed about this experience? It was, I would call near death experience that influenced your behavior differently. I think the the biggest one was just realizing that you can't do it by yourself. Mm. We we all we all you need we all need friends and a support network t- to some extent. Yes. Oh yeah. And 
and then and being more self-aware i mean you know i didn't realize i knew i was sick but i didn't really realize how how bad off i was mm -hmm. which goes back again to it's hard to be an island like i i don't know what would have happened if i if if i hadn't had my brother there to to you know grab me by the arm and say no you need to go see a doctor yeah because i didn't i knew i was sick i didn't realize i was that bad off yeah you know and i'm pretty i'm pretty self-aware mm -hmm. i mean i'm very self-aware but for for whatever reason if it was because i was naive on that nobody knows everything about everything and maybe i was sure. naive on that particular topic or subject mm -hmm. or the other thing that happens that I've tried to relay in my story is, you know, if when you're sick, when you're sick or you're in pain, your thought processes aren't the same yes. as when you're yeah. when you feel good and you're healthy. Yeah, it, like I mean, it literally affects the way that you you think. When I was when I was in the middle of my hospital stay, I genuinely thought I was doing better. Mm -hmm. I had no idea it was on 40 liters of air a minute or, or how big of a deal that was. It's like a yeah. breezy in, in here in my lungs. Yeah, I feel like a strong wind. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, it's a phenomenal um, thing to be aware of is to know when you are, should not be responsible for yourself. Like I'm in a state, and this would be, you know, I would come back to like some of the stuff that Mark talks about being in the mountains and making bad decisions at the wrong time you're just like you're you're not in a good place to make good decisions so know that about yourself so that you can put yourself in a position to make better decisions i would say this about you know normal life living is like you know what i see is a fundamental like if people are in debt past a certain point they're desperate and they make really poor decisions right that like they feel it happens with health too yeah the same the same yeah. this is this is kind get, of systemic of the whole problem is yeah. like we're dealing with this pandemic because people are paying for their past decisions kind of acutely right like when you come in like maybe the rent came due yeah. all at once as opposed to trickling in over yeah. time right that apr is added up and instead of paying yeah. it monthly now if, if it was if it was a chunk and maybe some credit cards do this so people could realize and when they realize the number that's at the end of it so if you have like 20 grand in credit card debt and you're paying like 19 percent or 20 percent apr man if you see that number at the end of 20 that 20 grand is close to like 40 grand like it's almost double but you're like oh it's 19%, but it's, no, it's compounding interest. Month. Yeah, <laughs> it's compounding interest, right? The, the annual percentage raise, you're paying that. In, and I think health is no different. I think these these little things that you do compound and they either hurt you or harm you. Yeah. They, they compound both directions. Exactly. Yeah, there's right. negative compound yeah. and there's positive compounds. If you Exactly. If you eat right and get good sleep and work out a little bit, Man, you can tolerate so much more just because you have yeah. a foundation of lifestyle stuff. But you you skip one of those because of some pressure. Like, I uh, you know maybe I I um, I watch TV to de stress, right? So I go home at night and then I end up staying up till like two in the morning because man, that show was really good and I just wanted to watch one show after the next. And then I wake up because I got to go to work and I got to pay the bills so I can have my Netflix. And then I'm like, well, fucking now I got to drink six cups of coffee in order to actually get to a place where I can do it. Um, I'm waking up late. I'm stressed because I'm in traffic and now I'm at work all day. And now I need the, you know, the TV to de-stress from such a shitty day. But if you could just 
reorganize that. It take a little bit of sacrifice to miss your show for a couple nights, get a normal amount of sleep for a couple weeks on end and recognize and go, oh shit, that's not good for me. And maybe six cups of coffee is excessive because I'm having heart palpitations. <laughs> maybe I should like try to find a different way or change my diet, et cetera, et cetera. You could go on and on and show like sleep, food, and just normal interaction with human beings, touch, intimacy, stuff like that is a foundation for so much more than just what we think that it is. So um, do you would do you think that if more let's just talk about American America, but if more Americans were more self aware and taking better care of themselves, that the impact of this whole pandemic over the last two years or so would be lower? I think it would do the first thing that it would do, which would disrupt probably the entire world is productivity would go down pro probably by like 20 or 30%. Yeah. And I think because it would go, it would, it would, be, go, it it would go down. I think initially it would go down because hmm. people would first have to take care of themselves in order to get to a spot. But then eventually productivity would go up because you have healthier, happier people who understand that what they're doing, it, it, like you it runs like every problem, right? Like at first you think you need to make somebody work six days a week in order to get the most time out of them. So you pay them for that time. But what they realize suddenly is like, actually, if we have an amount of work that needs to get done and we give people the schedule, they make their own schedule, it gets done in three days. Therefore, that person has a life to live and the same work is getting done. But instead, greed kicks in and it tries to amplify or optimize the time period. And now if we can get people to do that three-day work period, double their work and do six periods, but now you're overworking people. And I think that's where we're at as a society. We're not overworked. We're, I don't know what the term is for it, but we're just... We're under-optimized. I, I, it's, it's like over something we're 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 like we're we're not actually being productive anymore we're just show we're just overly present and not mentally present but just physically present and that that goes with like the fact not our job but yeah. like whatever job you work your boss can text you anytime and make you work more that's an acceptable thing that was not acceptable 40 years ago if your if your boss called you at home they would apologize profusely for interrupting your life and now it's not like that. Now we both have, you know, we, we I think we we have situations that are kind of different. Yeah. We organize our own schedule, but I think that's a feature of us honestly trying to really understand what makes us operate the best, which is I can't have somebody else tell me what to do. It's too big of a stress. Well, it gives you the secondary job or the primary job of resisting them. <laughs> <laughs> and then that <laughs> <laughs> I just have to. All right. First, first uh, <clears throat> characteristic of my job is to resist being told what to do. Once we get past that, I'm a I'm a great worker. Really, I'll punch that clock all day. I think it's a hundred percent true. And I, I, I think we accidentally, I accidentally, because this is not conscious, put myself and the people around me into a state that would help me thrive, and it took years to kind of organize that mm -hmm. and a lot of frustrations and a lot of risk oh yeah and I, I and i think i don't think we're pressured to risk correctly which is like uh, if you could if you could tell somebody hey if you do without for the next two years mm -hmm. uh, maybe this is like common sense but do without you know don't don't buy too much don't eat too much 
and really try to understand your bare minimum for like good living, which is waking up naturally. I, I think that that's a dumb metric, but I think, yeah, I think that's a really important one. Okay. If you, if you can wake up naturally without an alarm and then go about your day, your entire life changes. Like on average. Okay, every once yeah. in a while, yeah, I got to wake up because I got a meeting or something right. like that or wake up for a plane flight. I'm not saying that you don't ever need to be woken up, but for the most part, like your natural schedule just falls into a rhythm. I think your entire day changes. And if your entire day changes because you're able to feel better upon waking up and not groggy and not whatever. I think you act differently. And then that is an exponential good. Cause now if I could do that for months at a time, yeah, like you just change the weirdest shit. And I did, which something I find interesting is like, I, my sense is that people who are sort of, um, temporally different as mm-hmm. in their night owls, mm-hmm. um, that uh, like it's, te- if, if they could go to work at night, yeah, it'd be, fantastic for them yeah whereas like putting the the eight you know eight to five nine to five yeah whatever type um uh requirement upon them is already a source of stress an underlying source of stress <laughs> i for sure i hear this is the weird thing about that i thought i was a night owl kind of person okay for, and i might have shifted because yeah. for the longest time i got a lot of work done like 11 to 12 mm-hmm. it was like a weird a weird uh you know productivity time yeah and now i think it's shifted i think i'm like an early person which sucks <laughs> it sucks so bad because i still have the habits of being kind of late night yeah. and relaxing a certain way and my day is set up that way but i am making the shift and now my natural time now i start to wake up naturally closer to six thirty, okay uh, seven naturally which is annoying, but also if I if I understand that natural cycle, if I wake up and actually do something with it, my day changes. Like productivity, yeah. and productivity as in like stuff that I want to do gets done. And if I don't listen to that, if I kind of fuck around and wait until I feel like better or different, it doesn't happen the same. And I, yeah, that's kind of like a fucking wormhole off of like how to get to good living, but it all started with just being like, I'm not going to fucking wake up to an alarm. Why yeah. would I do that? That's for, that's for, I don't know. That's for servants. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to be a servant to somebody else. Mm. Like you can serve yourself, but that one, I guess, resistance towards like, you know, don't tell me what to do. <clears throat> don't tell me when to wake up. Yeah. And that really helped me understand when I need to wake up or when I need to go to bed. I still go to bed pretty late you know, 11-ish, but I only need six or seven hours of sleep to feel normal. Okay. Uh, if I get eight, I feel weird. If I get too much, I feel weird. But who would ever know that sensitivity if you if if you are so dependent on paying your mortgage and your car payment, and therefore you're dependent on your boss to pay you a certain salary, so you have to wake up when they tell you, you would never understand these things about yourself. And uh, that that's the problem. Also, if you're if you're stuck in a certain mindset of quote unquote, the conventional wisdom Mm -hmm. that you have to get eight hours of sleep every night. Yeah. Sometimes you need more than that. Sometimes like right now you need less. Yeah. But a lot of people can't get past, uh, they can't get to a state of clear thinking where they're able to evaluate that and figure it out for themselves because they're not, they're not self-aware enough. Right. 
and uh, certainly the pandemic didn't really help. I it didn't help with that at all because I don't think that time period, whether it's the two weeks to crush the curve, which ended up being two years, and it's still out of control or whatever, um, which is a totally different subject that I do want to talk about eventually, which is the numbers having to do with this thing. Um, but I would have thought that in my head, I was like two weeks where we can just go hang out at home. And that sounds awesome. Like who's against that? And some people are very for it. In fact, they're just for the, you know, the free paychecks and all that kind of thing that came with having a normal job. But I don't think people really took that time to take care of themselves because you look at the amount of population they they got worse during that time period. Whether it was the two weeks or if you're in you know, London, it was two years or whatever. There was a there was a long period where you were isolated and you had time to evaluate certain things. There's very few people who came out better, like very few. Uh, there's very few people who came out more aware. They're they're you know less aware more distracted because of these machines that we have that tend to like play on the parts of our brains because remote one of the things about sort of remote working Mm -hmm. is that i think you you end up being more dependent on the machines and the tech and and in a stronger relationship with them it's the uh, um because it's the only way to interact. You can't go knock on someone's door and have a conversation with them to solve a problem that you have or to pitch an idea that you have. Um, That, uh, and, and then once you're open to, you know, having, you know, a phone and two computers with two different operating systems and a tablet, you know, all on at the same time, all sort of direct feed from the outside world into this, place where you are alone and isolated because that's what they said you should isolate um and so you i mean a you're you're just you are just a sponge Mm -hmm. and that stuff is like you're being changed your psychology is being changed by direct technological injection Mm -hmm. you know in a sense (laughs) and um and and i found it there was like a okay there's a point there yeah we're not going to do the social media thing anymore because of you know how for i think we a lot of us we had different reasons mm-hmm. for it um there was a period where i was like i'm fucking no news none of this shit into yeah. my house for two weeks it was fantastic yeah um and the time now it's um it's like okay so where do i get what do i want to know about what are, where do i get the news what's my habit drink my coffee you know read this source this source that source this source you know yeah. da, 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 da. and then i'm just like fuck i can't leave because because <laughs> because it's terrible out there i and gotta buy a generator and water storage or something <laughs> yeah ex- exactly or um or, or get vaccinated um, <laughs> because because if I don't then then well then I'll be othered by by people who <laughs> who did and are righteous about it so that's terrible but I but I think that the the thing of being in isolation made people more dependent on the technology um, less accustomed to actually interacting with other people yeah that doesn't hasn't made the world any uh, uh, a, a better place and I don't think on an individual level the that the greater percentage of people are in a better condition um, if that condition was, you know, examined through uh, under the umbrella of health or um, sort of fitness or, um, you know, maybe maybe more people are more satisfied with their not jobs <laughs> <laughs> um, or, you know, the people who, yeah. who left the workforce 
or, you know, first by saying stay at home for two weeks, stay at home for a month, stay at home for three months. Um, and they're like, wow, this is great. I really like this. I'm going to try and figure out a way to do this more. Yeah. Okay, those people are probably happier. Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently, if you look in the classified ads, especially here in Salt Lake, um, not everybody was cut out for van life. You can get a you can get a van, you know, <laughs> these days. Uh, there's a lot of them to choose from. But are we, is that happening? Are we getting a nonprofit? Van? I haven't. Oh, okay. I haven't quite gone down that road. No, no, we need that. Uh, we really got to sell the shit out of that new zine. <laughs> <laughs> and among other Before, things. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but I, I I agree. It doesn't it doesn't seem that um, yes maybe lives were saved, but were lives improved by all of these measures that have been imposed in the last two years? I mean, if it I might be a good question to ask. It could that that's a good question because I, I mean you you'd need metrics around it that, yeah, that made is, sense. But I think there's another interesting question there about the the lives saved thing, and I I'm not convinced that our intervention has done anything. Um, it does seem statistically that in some places the annual all-cause death rate has remained pretty stable. Uh, and that, and, and <laughs> like by stable, pretty I mean, much like, everywhere, right? Pretty, I yeah. think pretty. I, 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 it, this, the the data sets that um, that I looked at that somebody else had had compiled, um, it, it wasn't you know everywhere. Um, mm. in the world now, I don't remember exactly. Might have been, might have been Europe, Northern Europe, mm. um, pretty specifically. But, uh, but still, y- yeah, it, it's not. I'm, I'm kind of blown away, just n- numbers wise and record. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance going on surrounding this because I think people are just so tired of it, and um, they've, they've quit processing information they've quit adapting and changing their mind based off of what becomes available like locked into the position that they already held six eight ten months ago or something or or, or longer ago or longer. yeah yeah i mean people made a decision yeah. and they a lot of people built their persona around the decision that they made or their stance that they took which is a really weird thing um i think for a person to do but it's also kind of what we've been taught like don't be a fence sitter and you're like what yeah. do you mean but don't learn anything but <laughs> Like, you know, don't change my mind about anything. I was like, they, yeah. like any any leadership point of a leader changing their mind gets looked out like they're you know of poor constitution. I think that is a a cultural problem, kind of like how you mentioned. Um, but the the weirder part about it is like just looking at like raw data and trying to process it. No matter how poor the sourcing is, the the amount of cases that are up now, and you're starting to see like you know the death to kick right after it which is also a strange thing that they could pull a metric from really quickly but you're going to see things ebb and flow and when you when you see a kick in now we've there's more cases this year than there were in 2020 oh yeah but why why is that is that because we're testing more i mean it's a good question there's a lot of stuff that we don't really know and i'll give you an example of why i said that Mm -hmm. is that between my house and my shop, it's about four miles, and there's three testing centers. Oh, sure, yeah. Right, that I drive past every day, right? And in November and December, I never saw anybody at the testing centers. And the last two or three weeks, every time I drive by one, there's cars going around the block. Yeah. So 
And if you look at the numbers in Utah right now, it's like oh, 10,000 10, cases a day, right? right. And, yeah. and everybody's panicking, like, oh my gosh, there's, well, are we just testing 10 times more people than we were a year ago? I honestly don't know. I mean, that's, but a that's what it looks that like. That was kind of like the old Trumpian thing where he's like, well, if you don't, if you want less numbers, just test less people. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, there's something to that. And what does it really mean? Well, and here's did, the did 10,000 people have a sniffle or right. did 10,000 people test positive, but they don't have any symptoms whatsoever. Mm. This, this is something that Peter Tia brought up on his podcast. We was talking about is like that the, the tests have to make sense. Like, what are you testing? Are you testing because you you don't you you might go into public and spread something? Then it would be a good thing, but I don't think that's I don't I think we've just been like conditioned to test to make sure that we have it or don't have it. And this is where and the behavior and it's thing binary. Comes. It is binary. And here's the the behavioral thing I think is more interesting because the numbers are kicking and so many people are vaccinated. Right? There's like 200 million people in America that are vaccinated. The majority of the population is vaccinated, which means they've reduced their likelihood of death, which means they have changed their perception of their state and that will in turn change their behavior. So which now you see people convince them to, oh, well, I've got a deflector shield. I can spread do whatever more. I yeah. want. And this, yeah. this, I've heard this from so many different people and even people coming in and out of here under the impression, illogically, that because they're vaccinated it doesn't matter anymore but that's what they that's what we were told for a while is if you get vaccinated you're immune and and, and it's, it's a magic and it it's a magic bullet yeah which is so weird to me especially because this has become um the the messaging behind it is get vaccinated and you're doing it for your neighbor and you're like it has nothing to do with my it comes with like reducing my risk of death it's a solely selfish thing that you should do if you are at risk i do think you should do it if you're in one of those risk categories there's no reason not to it, there's risk associated with any kind of uh, medical intervention obviously but it it's pretty likely that you know covid will fuck you up if you're in a certain demographic pretty bad and some unknown demographics too especially if you're unaware of your own state uh, if you're unaware of your own state it's like go get vaccinated double down on being unaware and just do the thing that makes sense how it's become a weird thing and without people recognizing authorities without recognizing that they would influence people's behavior negatively if they send this messaging like just to flatly tell people don't worry about it just get vaccinated that's the only thing you need to be concerned with is like man that was it's kind of a bad message uh, just, just from this, not that vaccines are bad. Just or from good a common or, sense standpoint, yeah. it's a bad message. Like there's so many other bad. factors yeah. involved. Yeah, because you you do lose. We all lose attention, right? We're all gonna get fatigued, and we, we we all get to this point where, man, I just can't pay attention anymore. Your your brain just loses it, loses the care for it, and when that happens, that's when things start to go awry. In every degree, not just spreading the disease, but also in your own behavior. And I think people lost their attention for their own behavior a long time ago. And this, this was supposed to be the fix for it. And I, man, that sucks. Well, why the messaging isn't, you should really learn how to take care of yourself is beyond me. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, that's the messaging. I think, I, I think that point is lost on a lot of people. Yeah. They don't even realize how important it is or that it's a thing. Uh, yeah. I, I, to the answer, like kind of where I think, 
what helped me recognize talking to you about your story was like, man, you really do like everything kind of starts grassroots. Things that are important will start grassroots. The things that are still important are being aware of yourself and your health, but also those immediately around you. You mentioned the other day because your friend did die from this. And you mentioned seeing him sit in your shop and going, man, you're kind of overweight, dude. Like, yeah, I almost, I almost wanted to say something to him. Yeah. I, I, I held my tongue because you know, it would have, I didn't want to impinge on our friendship or anything, but I had a bad feeling when he went in the hospital be, yeah. just because he was so overweight. Mm-hmm. I, I would say the, like, I mean, it's a huge risk factor for 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 really for anything for, for any kind of health, but it, for sure. it is a big risk factor for COVID. Uh, it's, it's definitely correlated to poor outcomes. Like a yeah. hundred, like the data doesn't lie about that. I I would say, but that might not be the only thing. How I look at and, it, I, and I wasn't even thinking about it at the time. Yeah, you know, I told you that story. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time that I was talking to him, I wasn't even thinking about it in the context of COVID. I just was just thinking generally. about it in the context of, hey, you're my friend. I want to see you be around. And yeah. I know that for anybody being significantly overweight, it's it's a bad thing. Yeah. I think that I think that's such an important thing. I think that's an important message to spread. The message is, man, if you care about the people around you, you should be very honest with them. And, and you should risk your relationship in order that somebody has accurate feedback because we all become unaware sometimes. Some people are unaware that they're in a bad state, whether that's stress, life, work scenario, or it's like something physiological, like they are not caring for themselves physically or through nutrition or whatever. I, th- I think pointing that out about people, I, man, I, it's important. And I think it got I, lost in our culture. I, I always felt like that was something that you do for your friends and your family and people that you care about. But you have to be careful, too, because if you just want to talk about um, being overweight, mm-hmm. and, and in this context, we're talking about people that are significantly overweight, not 5 or 10 pounds. Sure, we're yeah, talking yeah. about 25 <laughs> or 50 or more. Okay. They know. It's not. It's not like... It's not like my friend didn't know he's overweight, right? And so it's a fine line to balance because some people take it different. In fact, I talked with this friend about this principle relative to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And and I said, yeah, I was ready to tell this friend of mine, hey, I'm worried about you and, and you need to address this particular area of your life. And my friend that died said, well, if you'd done that with me, I would have been mad and we would have gotten a fight about it, over it. Just part of why I didn't say anything to him about That's... his weight. He, if somebody's sitting there 50 pounds over the weight, they, they know. Sure. It's just, it's just most of the time they don't want to deal with it. They, they, don't want the, they don't want to do the hard work. They don't want to change the way they eat. It's true. It's most of what it comes down to. But, but, I, but I, think, I think after the initial part of being offended or rage or whatever because truth is not truth isn't a relief (laughs) it's most (laughs) obviously the opposite in almost every scenario like true truth is is this fucking burning light that it like if you expose yourself too much of it you you really are damaged into a certain degree you can only be exposed so much for it to be useful and for the people that get offended it's because it hurts yeah. right like like there's a there's a physical sense and there's obviously a 
a correct way in, in how to deliver certain information to certain people. And and some people are super receptive to it. Some people are kind of waiting for a friend to say, hey, yes. yeah. hey let's go on a diet together or let's start yeah. working out together or let's, yeah. whatever it is. We all have, you know, some people are overweight. Some people aren't dealing with their, their personal issues, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, we all have different things that, that we need to work on. Yeah, it's weird. And some people are more open. You know, some people are almost waiting for a friend to say, hey, do you need help with this? Yes. Yeah. They, Michael, they need to be, they need to be know, invited. Dude, you're a little overweight. I know that's not you. Do you want to go on a diet together? Let's work on it together. I want to lose five pounds too. And maybe There's like power because that comes we have that. so much importance put on like the superficial nature of what you appear like. Like the weight loss thing is a hard one, but I see it in, in, even in like the... I have some friends that are like, man, you probably should sleep more. Like anybody that gets offended by that is a moron. <laughs> but people do have a hard time like taking the reality of it. What I'm really saying is like we used to joke about this. Like when you ask, like, have you been fasting? And like what you're really saying is like, you're a fucking asshole right now. You need to like chill out. <laughs> eat some macaroni and cheese or like whatever the comfort food that lets you relax is. It's like there, there's certain code words that I think you could like push people into, but we have to do it in here all, all the time. And honestly, I'm in the same position as you. It's like, fuck, I got to say something like, don't these people have like better friends? Yeah. But, why does it have to be me? And it's not, sometimes <laughs> it's not like, obviously people come in here. They know we're judging them about their weight and their, their physical appearance because that's what we do. But these are more behavioral. This is more attitude that when I, somebody doesn't know that how they respond and interact with other people is detrimental. And sometimes they're, they're stuck and they're, they're hurting so much and they're in a place where they can't deal with it. And so they just yeah perpetuate their whatever their negative behaviors are, whether it's their diet or their social skills or their fitness or whatever, they're just not in a place where they can, where they're receptive. And this you just described was most of America. They're not I, in a position where they can receive. I've been thinking that this whole time we're talking about yeah. this. Yeah. A lot of us are that way. Yeah. In which case you can't message properly to somebody who isn't receptive to it which is they're just not ready and they're not ready to do the work. You know, a yeah. lot of this stuff, it's hard. It's hard for people to look in the mirror and say, you know, I need to change and I got to do some of this stuff is really hard. Yeah. It's, it, it can be, you know, if you're, if you're on a typical sugar addicted American diet, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to change that. Like you've got physiological stuff going on. Oh Yeah. Your brain it's a real addiction. It's yeah. as powerful as yeah. uh, it's a drug, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's, and a lot it's of people aren't FDA, in a yeah. mental place. You know, the three of us we know each other pretty well, and if and and we're we we understand the principle of doing things that are hard. Sometimes you do things hard in the immediate for the longer term payoff. Yeah, or sometimes we do things that are hard just for the sake of doing things that are hard. Mm -hmm. Whatever, whatever it is, if we're talking about something mental or physical mm -hmm. or it's all the same or whatever, but a lot of people are not in that place mm. where they they basically what happens is they psych themselves out for doing something hard before they even start doing it. They're like, I don't want to suffer, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, I steal your phrase, the art of suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, there, which I stole there from. is a. 
Voitech Curtica. <laughs> there is a, a, it's patented, right? Yeah, I don't you gotta think be careful so. not to use it, but yeah. <laughs> there, there is kind of an art to it and being able to do it with a bigger goal in mind. Yeah. Right. I think what some people just aren't in a place where they get that or where they're ready to tackle or, that, or where they would see the potential. Um, yeah, they can't positive outcome of something. All they like see that. is the suffering and the pain part of it. Yeah, yeah, and consistently having to confront that. But I think uh, um, it, it, what what Nigel said is like, hey, if people and you, if people aren't ready to receive. If they can't, if they can't hear the no messaging, we could like shout up and down about create a new bureaucracy that helps people <laughs> understand their health and, you know, get them, you know, on the road to this, that and the other. If if the ears are small, it doesn't matter. Right. Like that's, if people aren't, but, and, and so how to how to fine tune the potential listeners or the people who could change um, or, or, or who need to. To, to put them in that position where they are more ready to receive information. I don't, I don't that know. Is, what that, that is the be. biggest pr pressing question for me in my life right now. I, I know some people that it's, it, it hurts me to watch them. Oh, yeah. There's, there's suffering and there's hope there for them, but they're not ready for it. And you can't make people. Oh, yeah. You know, you can't. You can't take a, a, somebody who's somewhat functional in life and make them do stuff. If they do something wrong, you can put them in jail, right? Mm -hmm. But if you just take a regular person, if they want to be miserable or they want to be overweight or they're not willing to, to face whatever it is they have to face to have a better life, you can't make them do it. And it's, I, f mm -hmm. I find it very painful to watch somebody that you care about who's in that Oh, absolutely. He's in that state because but you're it's like, not, how can I trick him into being happier? See, and there's the, the difference. There's a the difference between trick and make. Mm. Um, and, and you're right. You can't make people do it, nor should you. Yeah. But it's, it's helping them. But it, it, even, even if it's for their own good, yeah. you start making people do shit, you're going to come up against a lot of resistance. But it doesn't we work. Can, but yeah. uh, but I agree. It's and it's the, you know the basis of our business for a long time was tricking people mm -hmm. into behaving in a certain way, leading them by way of incentives, pulling from the front, pushing from underneath, maybe a little bit of shame, maybe you know some other spices thrown into it. But it is absolute trickery, and it's it's like okay, okay, you're a and, stubborn donkey. And, and have you found and have you kicking found you, you in the ass doesn't hasn't helped. I'm you know, I've been doing it for two years. Nothing's changed. I'm going to try for another year. Uh, no, get a fucking carrot, you know, or yeah. whatever, you know, make the donkey go hungry for long enough. And the motherfucker is going to walk towards <laughs> the food. And um, and it, however you, you you need to do it. But it's it is enticement. It's incentivizing in some way. And no, in this last two years, no voice, respectable, powerful, loud, hearable, whatever voice came out and tried to incentivize people to change behavior in order to reduce or eliminate comorbidities that might put them at greater risk. That, that, that voice was never heard. It never even comes up for discussion. No. It's, it's like it's not even part of the it's, thought process. It's not even a method that has negative side effects. There are no negative connotations other than you feel bad about being honest with yourself. 
in order so to start would, making a change. Would you say that, like, theoretically, the president of the United States or the governor of a state should should give a speech and say, hey, everybody, we're dealing with this pandemic. Get vaccinated, wear your masks, wash your hands. Monday. But, but also <laughs> take... You know, start eating your fresh f fruits and vegetables and get better sleep and take your vitamins. But is that a voice you would listen to? I mean, I don't know who that person would be, but it has it. It would be a different person in different social contexts. I mean, Dr. Yeah. Fauci uh, or the, the Utah the, health director. Is that <clears throat> is that what you guys are saying is some leader? I'm not sure. Be and I've um, all of the people. Um, that you have just mentioned have been thoroughly discredited. So no, none of those people <laughs> speaking about anything is well, going yeah, to produce I, I, I just, good. I just Some met, people do credit them with authority, in which case... They're authority figures is sure. what I'm saying. It's just, we need a leader to come out and say, hey, everybody. But if So let's just say uh, the, the county mayor here in Salt Lake County came out last Friday and said, as of Saturday, there's a new mask mandate. And then if um, and, and any time you're indoors, you have to wear a mask. This is going to last for a month, blah, blah, blah. Um, OK, whatever the next words out of her mouth about health and changing behavior. Um, I, I would completely disregard because I because she's already, you know, tried to compel uh, behavior that has not proved to be effective. Um, uh, therefore. I'd say, oh, well, this person misunderstands, uh, you know, aerosol transmission and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and and, um, and also, you know, severity, et cetera. So I'm not going to listen to that that particular person. Um, so that's not the voice I'm going to listen to. Others may. They go, yeah, mask mandate. Fuck yeah. yeah. Someone um, cares let's about do us. It. Someone cares about yeah, us. And, they th and so then if she comes along and says, and um, about Meatless Monday, uh, and, and then you might be receptive to that if that's the person whose voice you hear. So it needs to be diversely, you know, consistent message diversely expressed or expressed by, you know, a, a number of different authorities, friends, uh, opinion in leaders, influencers, blah, blah, blah. I, I think in, in my perspective, especially with dealing with like our small community, when having to communicate hard things to other people, um, there's, yeah, you could force people to do things. You could, I mean, there's the carrot, the stick thing. You could trick them. But most of the time, I just want people to understand. I want them to convince themselves that this might be the right thing to do. So you share from your perspective. So no matter what your position of authority, if it's in health or politics, the messaging should have always been the same, which is you need to take care of yourself. Here's how I'm doing it. As a leader, yeah. I go, look, you're going to have your own things and everybody has kind of their own specific way about living that should match how they feel good about it. For me, I'm kind of afraid of this virus and I don't know much about it. I'm going to sit in my house for two weeks. Uh, if I do need to go out, I'm going to wear a mask because, you know, that might be the best per perception that I have of, of what I can do. As long as things are on volition and you're sharing things that you also practice and not telling other people to do things that you don't even practice, that's real leadership. Real leadership is sharing what you're doing, hoping for a good outcome, and then changing when you have more information. You know what? 
the mask thing was weird. Now we know we have to have this specific mask and it doesn't matter or whatever. Transparency is probably always the answer. Transparency and then also just honesty. And I, I don't think I don't think that's I happening. Think there's, I think I agree with what you're saying, but I think culturally there's a big problem with that approach because culturally we in America at least, but really worldwide, we don't want people to be independent thinkers. We want them dependent on who's we on the state basically to make our decisions and to tell us what to do and to tell us what's right and to I tell agree, us what's wrong. I agree with that's how people get power, but there is already a precedence for sharing information. If you want to learn how to become a billionaire, you go talk to Steve Jobs or you can go to a dissertation about this. The things that we want to do better, there are authority figures that we absolutely listen to. And they don't tell you what to do. They share what they're doing. Gary Vaynerchuk goes, I do this. Culture, culturally, across the board, and I'm generalizing, we discourage independent thinking that you're advocating and which I support. I mean, and we do see it in the, um, in the fitness space mm -hmm. quite a lot, and, and uh, probably less so now, but where people are, like we're trying to educate people, trying to get, you know, um, to, to teach them, to, to get them to understand so they will um, change their behavior of their own volition. They will do that hard work of their mm -hmm. own volition. Plenty of people have come back and pushed back and said, I just want to be told what to do. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, we've seen like small scale representation of what you're talking about, Steve. Um, and uh, and we have been pretty successful within our bubble mm -hmm. of getting around that of mm. of. I mean, obviously, there are some people who are unteachable um, and they and, and and that's fine. They they go and they find someone to tell them what to do. They follow the prescription and and um, and they're just not in front of us anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> but for a lot of that resistance of I just want to be told what to do, and then as long as we care enough to help them understand that that's a dead end, that they will not, you know, arrive at the. That their declared end state that they desire um, by just having someone tell them what to do. Once they understand that, um, you know, people are willing to make to to become more independent um, and and take more control. I think one of the reasons when you know that people do that thing, I just want to be told what to do. It's because you know, part of it is. Um, because it takes away their responsibility. Yes. <laughs> what, what about the, I've, I actually, I think it's a super interesting topic. What about people who are so overloaded with information? Like, hey, Mark, look, I know a lot about this topic, but I'm confused and I don't, I, I'm having a hard time processing all this different, theories and information and styles and stuff i trust you in your area of expertise mm -hmm. to tell me what to do because i just don't have the experience and i don't have maybe i don't have the intellectual horsepower and the experience to sort all this out that's a different scenario than what you just described isn't it kind Not of. at all i think it's the <laughs> okay. same actually i was gonna say you just pandered the same thing to like it, it's it's the same problem, but it's dressed up in a different kind of excuse. 
because the root of the problem it's a different kind of excuse yeah it's it's it's, okay. it's i don't want to take responsibility for the uh outcome of my decisions i don't i don't think that's necessarily where that comes from well if i'm or, overloaded or, or not necessarily all the time well let's say somebody's overloaded like there's just too much information and and th this is my position on like if we're not a leader to very many people but some people do come here looking for some kind of leadership and i think that our position is fairly simple which is if i can help i'll help but more often than not i will help you find the answer right and that like i will assist you in teaching yourself we're i think the fundamental problem is we are all self-taught in the end nobody taught me anything i had to learn it and then apply the thing i might have gotten help from people who have more information than me uh, and they help clarify certain things. But even when talk, I mean, we talked about it earlier. You're like, how many different opinions you have about grips on guns and what slide you should have and where the are like all of these things. It's overwhelming to me. And how I work my way through that is I try to f take one thing from one person that I think that works. And then I look for a second thing that works from that person. Now that's a good person to get advice from, but it's not the end all be all because man, this person over here, they brought up this point and they totally disagree with that person. I'm just navigating. But I think the metric there is I have, I have decisions that I am making and I'm responsible for the outcome in the end. Am I able to hit the target? And if the answer is yes, everything else is irrelevant. Right, my overwhelming sense of how much information I'm unable to distill about trajectories and Mark's talking about grain. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. 1600 feet per second. I don't know how fast my bullet's going. Right, this is something that I'm looking to. Man, but when I have questions about loading, or maybe when I get into the details, I, I'm like already setting somebody up in a position that I could ask that question to. I just know I'm not ready for the the. The right question so in any kind of thing that you're looking for advice trying to navigating that still the most important part is what decisions are are you making about your practice and how are you applying it so i think the person that's overwhelmed with information is not trying to decide or tell them what is right or wrong because that would be immoral actually like to to tell somebody how they're right or wrong is exactly the kind of conundrum that we're in people are just tell me what to do. And they don't know how to handle COVID or anything else because they're so used to just being told what to do. Instead, show me how to find an answer for myself, right? Like what can yeah, I do I, to navigate this? I always support that in mm -hmm. principle, but it's also, you know, if I want to, if I want to be an ice climber or an alpinist and I'm just starting from scratch today, mm -hmm especially at my advanced age, I don't have 20 years to, to learn everything that Mark knows about that particular topic. So if, if I can talk to Mark, if I can hire Mark as a coach and say, look, I want to be a world-class alpinist and I'm studying on my own, but I'm kind of confused about building my aerobic base. And I can talk to Mark and he says, look, here's what we found works and here's what we found didn't work wait and he's going to say do with it what you will then i can advance a lot faster than if i have to spend 20 years reinventing the wheel but here's here yes that's all 100 percent true and that is that that is exponential learning curve and that's right? kind of where i'm coming from in my but here's the um, real answer because this would be hilarious what would you tell him to do at his advanced age 
Um, if you wanted to become a world-class alpinist and ice climber, choose a different sport. (laughs) (laughs) Because your relationship with risk will not allow you to be, you know, at this advanced age, regardless of whatever physical prowess we may build into you, your relationship with risk um, will not allow you to become world class at this particular yeah, I just, activity. I just chose that as I a mean, topic, I, but no, if I, I was if I was going to talk to you about, uh, you know, if I had a, a movie role and I needed a certain physique for it, I don't. I'm. I might. I'm sorry. We're never going to make your shoulders broader. <laughs> but the, and, no, this and, is and this is the brutal honesty that allows people to learn. Th- this is what I'm talking about. It's like it might have been a hypothetical. But that's the real answer, actually. And the real answer, whether it was ice climbing or whether it's healthcare, is the real answer is honesty. From what my perspective is, I cannot see you being a world class ice climber. Therefore, you should do something different or uh, that may be my lack of imagination it could be also <laughs> but then you would just go shopping for answers which is also a problem but then it's not his problem which is somebody under the incorrect belief that they can do things that will actually put them at extreme risk and this is kind of the problem with authorities unable to give honest answers which is not you're beautiful just as big as you are the real answer is you are detrimental to the system you're a risk to yourself and you're costing the country 500 billion dollars a year like that that's the real answer to a population but it it takes away from the consumer thing that i'm also getting a hand back on because i own these companies that sell you know chicken nuggets or whatever therefore i can't tell people that they shouldn't eat these things. They're very lean yeah. chicken nuggets. When somebody's answers are back are <laughs> backed by like kind of getting their back pockets filled, you don't have real answers. And this is the problem with leadership. Most of our leaders and authorities have back pockets that are open to pharmaceutical companies and food industry and other lobbyists and other industry. And it's therefore we can't get a direct answer on climate change because it's so clouded over how many people are influenced one way or the other based off of who like shell corporation is paying or you know is meat bad for you of course it is from the guy who's getting a handout from beyond meat who makes a vegan meat these are never going to be honest answers just like if mark's business was making 55 year old ice climbers you know um better and not die yeah you could be world class and when you're not i don't care because you bought my system that's ten thousand dollars for this training course that i charge over the summer and uh, <laughs> that's an idea that's business <laughs> I, it's just, a, I know it, 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 it's true and 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 i and i swear um you can develop the fitness of a professional climber on on just five hours a week that's all the attention you have to is that that's that's you can do five hours a week right can you do six? Yeah. The reality is it takes 20. No. If you could do four, I've got this magical serum that also comes that makes it so you can do it in an hour or less. Yeah. <laughs> because that's what I'm selling. But, um, but, I, but I, I, to, to but, sort of circle I mean, back to this idea of like, I've read all this stuff and I'm confused. I'm like, um, so just tell me what to do. Uh, more often than not, the person who says, um, you know, who, who has dipped their toe into a number of different theses mm. about um, that was T H E S 
Yeah, not feces. Not feces. Um, (laughs) But they dip their toe into a number of different theses about, you know, physical performance. Mm. Um, They they didn't go deep enough for any one of those ideas to affect them. Part of the person, part of the, I, I think, underlying thing when someone says, I just, I'm very... I've read all this stuff. I've I've tried to make myself educated, et cetera, but I'm very confused about what works and what doesn't. Um, just tell me what to do. In by saying "tell me what to do," I think there's an admission, or, or it it is mm. it, it goes hand in hand with that person saying, uh, "If you tell me what to do, then I never have to share my lack of knowledge." Or the shallowness of my exploration in these things that never taught me, you know, in these theses that never taught me anything. Um, if you just tell me what to do, then I am never, then I don't have to admit ignorance. That I that, that my ignorance will never be found out by way of a personal and uh, relationship based, you, you know, in honesty about your current condition and the condition you would like to be I, in later and how to get there. I think that's a valid angle, but and probably the most common human condition relative to this question but i also think there's a point where you go to somebody who's an expert because you know if somebody wants to know about the 1911 pistol and they want to ask me a question about it i've been working on it every day for 35 years and i know (laughs) a little bit about it Mm -hmm. and i can condense 35 years of experience into an answer that gives you something you can work with and now you don't have to learn how to fix the gun you can spend your time doing something else zone two more productive versus having to spend 35 years to get all that know-how that's but i think it's a different but even if you distilled what you thought was important it wouldn't be the same as what you thought was important 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago that's why that's why you want to talk to somebody with experience, but you're also talking about an inanimate object, mm-hmm. and not um, which someone has a particular question about, not human behavior. But and those are two very different have, things. We, ha- I mean, I he, agree with humans the thesis are very of, complex. Obviously, yeah. they're more complex than inanimate objects, but their fundamental principles of psychology and of health and of fitness. Mm-hmm. That apply to everybody, and the reason mm-hmm. that you would go, that you would talk to an expert, is to get their insight into how to, in, into, into how you need to modify and tweak those for your particular situation. I this is an interesting thing because I agree with you. You should talk to experts, but where we're where I think we go wrong is it's easy to identify an expert based off of the person who can do the thing. But who's an expert with with sickness? Is it the person who survives the sickness or the person who can describe the molecules involved in the pharmacology that treats the sickness? Like who... It's probably neither. Right, exactly, because this is a passive action. Somebody is like, it's thrown at them and they're dealing with them. In reality, the person who's an expert with sickness is the person who never gets sick. And that's not studied as a form of anything that's useful. Like that, that that's identifying the real expert of a situation with, say, you know, working on a 1911, it's fairly easy. You're the guy. And so your information is very detailed and it's in its expertise in knowing how to avoid certain things. The, the other interesting point about that expertise question is like, 
I think the real thing is like, no matter who you're talking to, you can learn whether they're an expert or, or perfect or, you know, they're, or they're perfect. if they're an idiot, sometimes you learn exactly because you're, what I'm looking for is where their awareness is or not is. So when you're talking to an expert, what I'm, what I'm subconsciously and just now probably aware of myself is when I watch you handle a gun or you or Mark handle a gun, I'm watching how you're handling it based off of what you're feeling, trying to, I'm trying to become aware of what you're aware of because I don't even know what questions to ask and you don't know what answers I don't know. That's, and I think that's where a good teacher comes in is and that's why I think I'm I'm trying to ask kind of a separate question. Mm-hmm. If when you have a good teacher, yeah, okay, the, and like one reason I would seek out a coach for certain mm-hmm. fitness things, okay, mm-hmm. is I want somebody I know a lot, okay, but I know that I don't know everything. But and that's I want very. Ta- but I want, if you seek out a coach, this is a word describing a certain set of characteristics or a teacher and maybe a coach this is a word is that, that different than an expert that describes a certain set of characteristics you are not asking either of them to tell you what to do you go to those people because they are guiding your because mm. they would be able to guide your experience rather than um uh just tell you what to do. Exactly. Yeah. And I Which think, involves I think, no learning and makes you dependent upon I, me, the teller. I think that's an important distinction. And I think you and Michael were both just trying to say that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't hearing I wasn't it, hearing the message it's of because we're not the, that good the coach. The coach being a guide. Yes. I, I do get that. I was on board with that from the beginning. Yeah. But I was having a hard time with the idea that as a, and and we didn't use these terms 10 minutes ago, but I was having a hard time with the idea that you couldn't go to a coach or a teacher or a mentor, if you will, and get steered guidance. Think about, um, let's just go back, uh, uh, a a particular individual that we both know. Um, If that individual told you what to do and then you did it, um, you it would be a completely different experience than watching that individual work <laughs> every day and dropping little bits of knowledge along the way for you to learn from, to be guided by, to be mentored by. And I think this is the, the thing is it's like, oh, I want an authority figure to tell me what to do is one statement. And then there's the other person who's saying, I would like a mentor to help me to, 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 to guide me through my own learning process. Yeah. Two and completely I completely fucking different things. I wasn't um, making that distinction earlier today. And I apologize. Oh, for no, that. No, I no, meant, this is beautiful. I meant to kind of describe that kind of a situation. And yeah, the thing is, is when you find a good mentor or coach or teacher, I don't think it's necessarily bad to trust them, right? So if oh, I, I think call, you have to. if I call that mentor and say, "Hey, I need to do perform this certain process of metallurgy," mm-hmm. and he says, "Okay, heat up the steel to ten thousand degrees for a five minutes and then quench it in in oil," mm-hmm. yeah, I think that kind of scenario can be okay. I don't necessarily have to go through all the learning curve. T- 
to get that we, data point there. Sure. But it, no, no, you don't have to go through all of that necessarily, but it would be more interesting if heated up to 10,000 degrees, quench it in oil. Um, if you didn't just do that blindly based on what that person said, if that person told you to do that, but then also educated you about why, I, I then it that, would be more useful in the future in you coming to the to, to, to the ability to make your own decisions about how to treat I, that metal. I'm totally on board with that. I get yeah. that. Yeah. I think we kind of crossed yeah. streams a little bit without meaning to because basically what you guys are encouraging and what you're doing really well at is teaching people to be self-sufficient and, and how to learn uh, a learning process and how to how to have a process where you you go to other people for help, but you're not dependent on them, and you don't give up your responsibility for your for your course of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that is that not what you guys are saying? Is, is... Uh, for sure, I think you you nailed it. And I don't think there was a cross stream. I think there was just a there's an admiration for you bringing up such a deep subject that we don't know how to bring up it's something that we do all the time but we don't actually ever really talk about or describe it's like one of those things that you're kind of unaware that you do subconsciously like you probably have so many things that are so deeply embedded in the way that you do machine work or 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 and you wouldn't even know to tell somebody how to do it because you're kind of I think it's so ingrained i'm I'm pretty unusual that way actually i'm very aware of this process Mm. and the and the process of teaching, you know, it's the it's the it's the old parable of you can give a man a fish and feed yep. him for a day, or you can teach him to fish and feed him for a lifetime. And he feeds himself. You guys for are a talking lifetime. about <laughs> feeding people for a lifetime by teaching them how to fish, right? And I think most authorities are teaching people how to fish so that they can tax their fish for the rest of their life, yeah. and they can eat for free while somebody else does all the work. They can eat beef for free. They don't have to eat that fish. Fuck that. I mean, I just... There was a meme that I put up the other day that I think had some grace. And it was like explaining taxation to people. And it was like a duck with a fish in its mouth. And somebody swooped up the duck with the fish in the mouth, took the fish, threw the duck back, and threw it a smaller fish. (laughs) Nice. It's not untrue. I mean, one one thing, you know, when uh, I was coming over to the shop and and uh, learning some things uh, in your area of expertise as an expert, um, you weren't telling me what to do. No, I, I was. You, you were. But if you asked me what to do, I, I if you said, "Hey, we're I gonna, wouldn't, we, I wouldn't. We, I need to grind. I need to work yeah. on this grinding wheel." To remove some metal from the I wanted you to learn how to do the task, but I also wanted you to learn how to grind. Yes. Which And that's what I'm hearing you guys describe as your process. Exactly, which you facilitated for me. You told me, you demonstrated, you allowed me to practice under your eye, and then you steered me in a way to where I didn't fuck it up too badly. (laughs) You 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 saved Um, him wasted time. But you still let him learn himself. Yes. Like as opposed to you, and this is our education is like learn this fact, this fact, and then you do this. That's yeah. our education system, but it's not education. You're not learning anything. Yeah. That's different. 
Yeah, that's a that's another. We could do a couple other oh, podcasts yeah. on just that topic. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Crazy. Maybe we will. Yeah, Maybe. we for sure revisit it. I something I'm curious about. I'm going to circle all the way back to COVID if mm-hmm. I can. Um, out of the hospital, we were talking about you know. Uh, Okay, the COVID brain, the brain fog that oh, you know yeah. go, goes along for a while, and like, okay, you could you could sort of pay attention at work um, for you know five minute blocks, and then have to kind of rest, and then it was fifteen, and then you were back in for a couple of hours a day, and then, um, uh, and what? Um, hey, this has been going. So you got admitted to the hospital in September. Yes, early September. I want to say I'd have to look back. I, to was, I think I, if I remember right, I spent about the month, a month before we. I got spent it. the month of September in the hospital. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, and that'd be about a month before because we were early October, yeah. and um, and so the the effects of something that you know initiated in September are still present in daily life, and certainly and and the and that experience is going to uh, I'm guessing going to affect some behavior in the future of, you know, relationship to fitness. Uh, maybe it's diet, maybe it's some other things. What are some, you know, like what is a one or two sort of things that stand out right now is like, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, cause we have talked a little bit about diet and, and I was like, well, don't go strict carnivore necessarily, mm-hmm. but you know, um, so I'm pre- I'm pretty in tune to diet. Okay. I've spent a lot of time studying diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried a lot of different diets, and I don't necessarily I I, I kind of know what works for me, but I I don't preach or proselytize any. But of do you them. know what works for you pre COVID, or are you talking about I, what works? I, for no, you just post? before COVID, I knew that. Okay, and has that changed? I have a pretty good handle on that. Because I, because that's a good example. I went through a, a, a pretty long learning curve trying a bunch of different stuff, and I had to figure mm-hmm. out what. Uh, I had to. I had a couple allergies. I had to figure out, and I had to figure out what worked, what works for me. And I now I have a big enough knowledge base that I can kind of tweak mm-hmm. different diets depending on where I'm at in my in my health or mm-hmm. where I'm at in my fitness, what my fitness goals are at the time, I might yeah. modify my di- diet accordingly. But um, my biggest thing, I think, is, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if it's really a takeaway. I'm not really doing anything that different. Okay. Um, one of the things I am doing in the aftermath is in a lot of ways, I, I have to, fitness is very important to me health and fitness and in a lot of ways i feel like i'm completely starting over with my fitness level oh yeah <laughs> i'm i'm very fortunate to be pretty healthy i think i've had a uh i think it would be fair to say i've had a miraculous recovery from covid most of mm-hmm. my brain fog is gone i have fairly good energy and but I, but I'm, I, I have to start out, start over, especially with my, uh, for lack of a better term, respiratory fitness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I had to kind of come to grips with that. It was psychologically a little bit 
spiritually a little bit difficult. Like, whoa, wow, I'm kind of like starting over here, but... I'm five points below zero yeah. in terms of my yeah. respiratory like, fitness. Literally, yeah. that's that's where I was at. Yeah. But I, fortunately, I was able to deal with that and and get over it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I just said, okay, you know what? This is a great opportunity. And so um, I kind of changed. I shuffled my goals around a little bit, some things I wanted to do. And, and one of the things I decided after talking with a few people, you two included is uh, I'm going to do more work on my aerobic base. Mm-hmm. And and kind of my, my general goal with that is a broader base than I had in mind the last 10 or 15 years or so. I had an okay one, but I'm like, you know what? I'm just starting over from scratch, and I've got a good program I can get on. And it's very doable. It's very reasonable. And I'm going to build that that base uh bigger than i have like since i was in college probably and and i'm i think that's i think it's important for just overall health it's it's the main reason i'm doing it but i also think i have some specific fitness goals in in mind and i feel like uh the bigger the aerobic base is the, uh, the more i can do with my other goals yeah like i don't see any drawback to it and oh, no it's generally not and the, pro- time the program i'm on is it's is, is pretty low stress and pretty low impact mm-hmm. so i can do a lot of volume and not uh number one i can get healthier and stronger that's i'm still kind of in that phase of just making sure i have good energy to get up and do normal life every day yeah but i think having the big I don't think you can have too big of an aerobic base, no matter whatever your sport is, and that it, it enables you in other pursuits. Yeah, uh, it, you recover better, and, and it's just a it's just a it's a good fo- foundation. And I think does that make sense? Certain metabolic functions are also improved. Yeah, on yeah. a you know yeah, quite a few. On a- so if you, I think if you take an athlete that has a a broad aerobic base. And he wants to be a strength athlete, or or you know, if you took somebody like an alpine ski racer, mm-hmm. okay, alpine ski racing isn't really an aerobic sport at all. It's the longest races in alpine ski racing are two minutes and thirty seconds. Mm-hmm. That's not really what we consider the uh, an aerobic event. Yeah, and talking in in rough terms, right? Yeah. Okay, so if you want to be an alpine ski racer. The conventional wisdom might say, well, don't worry about an aerobic base because your event is only two minutes and 30 seconds long. But the reality is, is alpine ski racers train every day. They train at altitude mm-hmm. and they the train, <laughs> they train multiple runs. Yeah, yeah. So your ability as an alpine ski racer to recover. Yep. Between, it's a big deal. So you can train say. more every day, and so you can deal with altitude. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in my opinion, a, a big aerobic base is a big deal for an alpine skier. For so sure. that's just one example that oh yeah that works I for mean, me. But if you want to be a weightlifter or a strength athlete, you you want to do Olympic like lifts or something. I, it's my belief. Uh, it's not for me to tell you guys. You guys, you guys know more about this than I do. But it's my belief that if you have a big aerobic base, um, 
your ability to recover from your strength workouts is better. It's true. There's just Wait, a, is it? a bigger, broader foundation. <laughs> Tends to be. Tends to, yeah. I, that's, that's my belief. How is the whole strength for endurance thing we were teaching for a while, right? I, yeah. Or endurance Endurance makes you weak. Oh, that was a different premise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity. <laughs> Yeah, that, there, there's like very little downsides other than the discomfort of doing it and the time spent doing it. Yeah. But the payoffs are like, they're, they're so enormous. They're I huge. Mean, we're aerobic by nature. Like every vital sign that they checked in you when you were in the hospital had to do with your aerobic system. That, yeah. that is life. And so without understanding that building that out as a foundation of your well-being, you don't really understand well-being unless you understand that you're aerobic by nature. Therefore, you process oxygen a certain way. And if I can make that more efficient, better, more robust, I'm going to have a higher quality of life and probably a more resilient system against certain pathogens or certain diseases that's, or whatever. That's my, that's my thought exactly. Yeah. I'm just yeah, not as sure. eloquent as you are. I, I mean... I mean, it goes, it actually we just talk a lot about it. <laughs> what, what Steve, you just said is goes, you know, quite well with the piece that we put out in the journal yeah. on the, on the website about, you know, how does an athlete recover from COVID? You know, what do you, what do you do? And, you know, a lot of it is like, all right, well, fix your lungs and yeah. your aerobic system, yeah. uh, is the primary order of the day. It sure seems like, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. I started. Um, I started rowing because I had the rower, mm-hmm. yeah. and I was. I was. I hope I don't come across wrong, but I'm kind of naive and simple in in some ways. I didn't. I was really scared, kind of mm-hmm. like during my recovery because I didn't really have any instruction, and so I didn't know. I kind of took a gamble to get myself off oxygen. They didn't yeah. give me they didn't how to fall. wean off because they yeah. sent you home. I was like, okay, the- if I wean off, am I going to die? Am I going to suffocate yeah. in my sleep or whatever? And you know, I got off oxygen, and then and then I just was sitting around so much, and I was just like, you know, what? I'm just atrophying. I have to move more. So, so I, there's um, thing that needs to happen. Okay. So I yeah. started rowing. I did five minutes one day. Yeah. Just super easy. I watched my heart rate. Yeah. You know, I didn't know if I was going to have a heart attack and die or something. Oh, yeah. Or, and I watched my pulsimeter. Mm-hmm. And I did fine. And then, and then I did 10 minutes. And then I did 15 minutes. And then, and I just kept adding. And I've, and I watched, this goes back to what Michael's talking about, about being self-aware. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was very aware of, Okay, how is this affecting me in the moment yeah. while I'm doing it? But also, what is the aftermath of this? Did I do five minutes and then I'm exhausted for the next 24 hours and I can't get out of bed the next day? Right. Fortunately, that's not what happened. I did, yeah. I did five minutes and then I just kept adding and, and it works. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was difficult at first because I was rowing uh, by heart rate yeah at a low rate which is kind of atypical for how how we train in in most sports for time okay rowing gets boring for time oh yeah okay but it gets even more boring when you're trying to keep your heart rate artificially low yes but it worked you know i did a month or two and then i did some informal testing and i compared to you know where i started to where i was and yeah. 
and I saw improvement and I felt better and 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 there you have but there it. was nobody you know. to there was nobody to tell me that I, I had to do what you said I had to I had a little bit of guidance and then I you know I, I figured it out what worked for me that might not work for somebody else yeah I, I'm, I'm in a different spot there's people that get COVID and six months later they're still completely stuck in bed and they can barely get out of bed to go to the bathroom and get back in bed unfortunately yeah. that that wasn't my situation I mean, anything, um, so the last, one of our last sort of communications, I think you were up to over an hour yeah. on the, yes. on the, on the machine. And have you, uh, in, in that progression, um, once you got to an hour, hour and 15 minutes or, um, did you revise the heart rate target? No, I kept the, okay. I kept the heart rate down. Okay. So I basically... Uh, I'm following the Maffetone method. Perfect. The MAF or the MAF. Yeah. And for me, and I, I like his system. Okay. It it it. So people like to pick it apart scientifically and stuff. Sure. But you know what? It works for people. It's... And if it doesn't work for somebody, they don't have to do it. But it works for me. Yeah. It makes sense to me. And especially where I, where I said I'm starting from zero. Yeah. That was a big thing for me. Like, uh, I, it took me a couple of days to kind of get over that idea, but then I got comfortable with it. But to have a realistic, and this is a you know uh, something that we have talked about forever, is like you need to have a realistic assessment of point A, which is where you are right now. Yeah. And if you accept, you, at some point, if you're able to accept that I'm at zero, then, um, well, then everything's going to work. You know, yeah. on, on on the one yes. hand, but but having that uh, uh, and, and being utterly convinced of the validity of your point A um, is, I think, the best. It's 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 um, it's the best starting point. It's the only starting. Oh yeah, point. in it's, a lot it's, of ways, it's it's you, much you, easier. You have no baggage about oh, I think I'm this or I'm that, and that's too slow. Yeah, and, I don't have any. And, I don't have any false expectations. And for the first time, really in my life, I'm doing fitness stuff without a particular event in mind or a particular yeah. goal in mind. In the past, you know, I was I was always in some kind of competitive sport, and so right. everything was was pointing to and directed at a, at a particular sport or even once inside the sport, you might be trying to peak for a certain time of the year. Sure. This is different. And, and it is easier in a lot of ways. When you start from zero, it's like any progress is progress. You know, the higher yeah. you get up on your, in your performance, the more difficult it gets to make incremental gains but also but the, when you're at the bottom it's easy to make big gains because you're at zero <laughs> but also i think that the the more experience you have in the you know with the process or the of of gaining fitness or performance within the context of a sport i mean i think expectations become a bigger factor than they are when you are at zero definitely definitely like you just you're completely if you go i'm starting at zero you are free yeah. Of, of any kind of constraints or prejudice in in the sense of how you're going to pr progress and how quickly and and you know what is intensity and what is not. Yes, I t I totally agree with that. Yeah. And so I started, you know, I literally started at five minutes the first day, and yeah. it, and I just added like five minutes every day or so, and then I got up to about an hour, and and 
it was difficult for us for a, a time it's still kind of difficult but it took me i kind of got past a a block if you will it and i also got to a, a point where my fitness was enough better mm-hmm. that you know for me the 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 target heart rate is about 15 or 20 points below my natural frequency if you will okay and so it's it takes a fair amount of um, discipline mental discipline to go that slow because it doesn't feel natural yeah but i found after a month that my efficiency improved enough that now i can get into a natural frequency and still stay at that low rate yeah and that uh, I haven't done this yet, but my sense is that I'll be able to add more volume without any detrimental side effects because the rate is so low. Yeah, I, I believe that should be the case. Yeah, yeah. So it's it it's good, and you know I would suggest that for anybody. Oh yeah, I, an old grandma or an old grandpa or something. It's like we all every human we need to move. And something like rowing or walking, the rowing might end up not being good for my rowing. I'm not, I don't row for sport, but um, what I'm doing right now is it's such an easy pace. I think I'm getting good technique. Okay. I'm rowing without straps. Yeah. And it's an easy pace and, and I'm working on my, I'm, I'm working on my technique while I'm rowing. It's one thing that keeps me distracted from worrying about trying to go faster or get a better time or a better, a is, better, more, more meters in in the hour. I I try to ignore that as much as possible, and and that takes a certain discipline of itself. But but you're working on you know skill development, and you know if we go back to the analogy of the the, the skier, the you know the the better the aerobic fitness. The faster you recover, you know, the or the more, the faster you can recover, and the more deeply you can recover between the, you know, the 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 practice intervals, if yes. you will, the more time you are able to spend acquiring skill or refining the skill, um, and the the technical aspect of, you know, actual skiing, um, and and so, uh, I I think what you're doing there is like let me you know what's being able to disassociate from the number is a really good thing like oh i only rode this many meters in an hour today my you know my fitness is yeah. all gone or or i had to i had to redefine the goal and it's a natural thing if you're competitive at all you yeah. always want to go a little faster or get some more meters in but i have to, i just keep reminding me myself your task here that you're doing is you're keeping your heart rate at this certain number mm-hmm. or below for time. That's the only goal here. Yeah, I need to my, expose myself to this level of stress for this amount of time. Yeah, End of story. and nothing else matters. Yeah, and, and that it took me a little while to to get mentally conditioned for that, and I still I still have to use that as kind of a you know I have to remind myself of that so that I don't. Yeah so that I don't overdo it. Also, I understand that this is the long-term process. I'm committed to the long-term and that, you know, there's no substitute for this. 
in my in my opinion and in, yeah. my, in, in my understanding of of this particular component of fitness there's no yeah. shortcut to this there's no there's no fast way to do it and yes i could probably start doing interval training or something right now but it would be short-term benefits relative to laying down this groundwork yeah this groundwork enables everything yeah basically and, and um and if we're still talking you know if we're talking about look you're still in the recovery phase of of uh you know redeveloping your respiratory you know cardio respiratory exactly system. and that and that's the objective and there's and and at this point there is no um i I won't say there's no benefit to, you know, adding some intervals, if you will, but there's also no reason to. Exactly. Yeah. That's why I mentioned the thing. I'm not, I'm I'm training really for health and just kind of general purpose fitness at the moment. So yeah. there's no reason to add anything to higher intensity yet. that might, you know, yeah, yeah. You're not, you haven't yet built... You know, I, I always, you know, people are I'm like, not, I'm like not recovered yet enough. I oh, mean, I'm, yeah. I'm having a good recovery, but I'm still, you know, I was in the hospital on 40 liters of air a minute three months ago. Yeah. That's not that long ago. So I'm still, you know, I've, I've done, I did a, a, uh, a minor performance test check or whatever. Okay. And I can see that I'm making progress, but I also can see that I'm, I'm 10 miles away from my rowing performance before. Yeah. So I understand it's a long road and building a base and, you know, doing, doing like a bunch of hard interval training right now. I might see short-term benefits from it. It might wipe me out. I mean, it could wipe you out, but it's also, you know, sort of, it could be something depending on you know, length and intensity of those intervals um, that, that would short circuit you know, the aerobic development. Yeah. By, by, yeah. Um, so it feels like you're on a good, as far as the physical activity and especially with your attitude about it. Um, I think this is a really good trajectory. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Michael split to go, uh, administer some fitness to, to people. Um, anything else in your notes about the experience that, let me look real quick because I think we um, uh, when we when we had the text conversation after about you know after you were at home and you had were going through some of the notes that your your mom had taken in there and you were kind of shocked to realize like oh that whole end of life discussion that they had with me that I thought was you know just routine because I was high and you know yeah. and I was kind of out of my head was fully real i mean to be that close that the medical establishment is is speaking with your next of you know next of kin or whoever would have yeah. medical power of attorney um a, a, about end of life procedures and at what point man that's serious as fuck yeah i mean i was uh, i'm lucky i'm sitting here i'm talking with you yeah i i i, I could have died yeah you know i was close to dying yeah the the nurse the nurses, they don't call and tell your next of kin that without, you know, good reason. Very good reason, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, don't set off any alarms um, with with anyone. 
Yeah, I do. I do think I had a couple notes here, and I just I think there's a couple things that are super, super important that I would just share with anybody interested yeah. in this topic. One of them is that probably this our single best barometer or indicator of where you're at with COVID is the fingertip pulse oximeter. Yeah. Okay. If you could only if you only have one gauge for where you're at, th- that's probably it. It's measuring. Um, uh, blood oxygenation blood yes. or oxygen saturation yes yeah. and and you know so if somebody gets covid even if your symptoms are mild the pulse oximeters are not expensive you can buy one at you can buy one at a pharmacy for 20 bucks okay okay and yeah. and and seeing where you're at there and watching your trends yeah is what matters if it drops to 90 and it stays down there you need to go to the doctor even if you feel fine yeah and it's also a way you can tell how your recovery is going. Sure. When I got out of the the hospital, even though I was on oxygen, um, also these pulse, these inexpensive pulse oximeters, they're a great tool, but they have limitations. Yes. And so it's more important to know your baseline. Like I think maybe my pulse, it's the one that I'm using might read a little bit low. Okay. Okay. They have a tolerance, yeah. but for twenty bucks, you can only expect expect so much, sure. right? Yeah. But, and I think mine maybe reads on the low side, but I have a baseline, and when I when, even when I was at home on oxygen, I was typically ninety two to ninety four percent. And and that's on when they send you home with oxygen, the maximum rate of flow is like four to five liters. Yeah, right? it's okay. it's four to five. And I and um, so I just I would just encourage people to have that and to watch that and know that that is probably your single best barometer. It's mm-hmm. just it's more important than than your fever or your cough or your sinuses or or whatever. Um, the other thing that's that is super important with COVID is that it's a it's very inflammatory, and inflammation is is one of the biggest issues in in the American health in general. Okay. And, and, uh, being aware of the inflammation and managing it. Yeah. Is vital. The COVID is an inflammatory disease. And a a lot of, you know, when I went back and looked at my medical charts after I got out of the hospital and had time and bandwidth to sort of, I was just interested in what they were giving me when. That was a big part of the focus of their treatment was keeping the inflammation down. Yeah. So the, uh, that's that's a big thing. And then the um, the self-treatment, I would tell everybody, yes, you, you need to listen to your doctors. Your doctors do have your best interest in mind, but you also need to self-treat and get get moving as much as you can, as soon as you can, without overdoing it yeah there's an art to that especially for athletes we're all we're all very motivated and we want to do more and we want to work harder and and get faster and bigger and stronger or whatever and but we only just you know no matter what our current condition we only remember ourselves at our best yeah and and it's uh and i think post ex, you know after exposure you know experience with the uh debilitating um disease 
as it expressed with you, um, you know, there's no rush to get back to, you know, what you remember yourself to have been capable of. You have to be patient and you can, COVID is, is, um, it's worrisome because it can attack. So it's not just simply getting the flu or getting a cold. It can Mm -hmm. attack your other, your other organs. And if you, if you're trying to recover and you, and you overdo it too soon, you can have problems that you wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. And so, so we all have to be very aware and paying attention and it's better, it's better to take a long-term view and, uh, and to have a long, moderate recovery mm-hmm. than, to, than to overdo it. Because you can die from overdoing it. I mean, this, uh, what you've just said is, is not good marketing for any fitness programs. I mean, it's not no. consistent with seven-minute anything. It, this is like, okay, seven months. Yeah, I'm looking. Self- I'm looking at rebuilding my aerobic base for a year before I'm really doing any any hard training. That's yeah. that's a long time. Yeah. But and and not consistent with the I want it now nature of our society. Yeah. Um. Which makes it which makes it difficult. I mean, there's there 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 uh, would be fewer. Um, there would be less social support for. Uh, addressing the problem in the way that you're doing it than um, would be available for some other uh, higher intensity options. Yeah, definitely. Which, you know, again, all high in- all intensity comes with, you know, no matter your state of health, all intensity comes with risk. And you just have to decide if it's, if, if, if the, the payoff from the, the work at a particular intensity is, is going to be worth that, that risk. And, in this case, uh, you know, hey, absolutely not. Yeah, and yeah. and for for most athletes, but even just for regular people, the benefit there's almost no if there's very few instances, in my opinion. There's a few sports where the aerobic base doesn't really matter, but for most of them, it does. And and for everybody's health, um, low intensity, easy aerobic work is is a positive. Oh yeah, I, I, whatever you're a, your population is, if you're old or young or medium, and there's very few competitive athletes in very few sports that wouldn't benefit from having a nice big aerobic base. So yeah. if somebody gets COVID and it's, it gets it very bad and they have to do this long-term recovery, there's going to be payoffs in the big picture and in the longer term in your sport. And, and, and also, if let's just say in the sport is it, uh, of life, um, because it doesn't necessarily have to be an athlete who would benefit from it. I mean, I think you were about to say there's no downside to, you know, undertaking a long-term relationship with aerobic training. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's 100% true. Yeah, it's all positives. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming in and sharing. Thanks for having me. This was, uh, we'll, I want you to come back and we'll, we'll have, we'll address some other topics, but this one seems timely and, and especially, you know, in our circle now, you know, of, let's just say the, you know, five people or there's some others who've, who've had it as well, um, within our orbit, but, uh, 
to, to really just sharing the experience, I think is important for people to hear and, uh, and what we're, you know, what each of us as individuals are, you know, been doing about it. And, um, and all I have to say right now is I've been sitting for too long. My new, uh, hip is a little bit ornery. And so I'm going to make myself up right now. Yes. It's part of my recovery. Okay. <laughs> all Good. right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you.